This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if this is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of that boys to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high positions, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 17 on Alwara Frequency. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, we're going to step back into the light a little bit in terms of covering British mystical figures from the late 20th century. We dropped a pretty pretty dark payload on a, everybody with the 09A episodes, so maybe... yeah. Although I As feel little... like, you know, the there's like, you know, uh, interesting contiguities between uh, the dark and, and the light, like as these things go, I think there's a certain, again, it's very hard to, uh, you know, uh, draw the draw the line uh, between. Uh, that's true. That's two. true. Yeah, I a, probably should. There's definitely a twilight zone in between. There's a you know uh... a liminal space, and yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think maybe I shouldn't raise the acolytes' hopes too much. Um, that this isn't going to get into weird dark territory because of course it is, but at least it's going to be pretending presenting itself as uh definitely a i guess you know right hand path tradition um but we're gonna we're gonna mostly focus on one specific spiritual figure who i actually i wasn't too familiar with i think you uh have been familiar with this guy for much longer but that is a british um individual of afghan extraction named idris shah yes um, he was like a major figure in sort of the popularization of Sufism uh, during the uh, sort of mid 20th century, but he's uh, very controversial. Actually, I thought that maybe a, uh, well, you know, I say he's very controversial. He's controversial for those in the know, but mm-hmm. I think that uh, he definitely still has a lot of you know, doing research for this podcast, I definitely encountered people who, like, if something negative was said about it, just shower, like, his uh, family or anything, there would be, like, people in the comments, like, how dare you insult the Sidrar, you know, like, and stuff like that, you know, so, like, um, 
there definitely like he still has a uh circle of acolytes um and mm-hmm. uh yeah he's not super well known but i think his influence uh definitely is something that uh can be felt you know people definitely have seen like uh sufi sort of materials in the new age section maybe at their bookstore mm-hmm. back when bookstores were a thing mm-hmm. uh you know they're familiar with uh sort of you know brad pitt has a tattoo of like the you know meet me on the field of love or well you know there's a like uh which you know is really a poem that actually mentions islam but uh mm. in the famous uh you know uh translation by coleman barks uh doesn't mention it at all of course um and tries to be some kind of transcendent thing and idris shah is really a pivotal figure in that shift uh mm-hmm. and yeah he, exactly or in that type of yeah world um i i think that yeah he his sort of uh his life's work uh syncs up pretty well with eastern religious or mystical traditions that became popular in the in the 20th century west and particularly in the uk and in the united states where i think another major example of that would be like zen buddhism and i think to some extent um the the contents of both zen buddhism and uh sufism are almost ripe for the picking for the types of people that were <clears throat> trying to promulgate like new sort of spiritualist ideas in the west um but unfortunately yeah. i think you could definitely say about both zen buddhism and sufism that they were uh, a lot was lost in translation yeah, to put I it mean, nicely. They, they provide a convenient shell because they're very little understood practices that aren't, you know, uh, really part of the like Western uh, culture, um, mm-hmm. and they like can be easily uh, if you can uh, swing it. If you're charismatic enough, you can uh, d- present something. Uh, as Sufic and prevent and present Sufism as something that sort of is, is satisfying people's uh, spiritual impulses and then their desires and the sort of searching that was definitely happening uh, during uh, Shah's heyday of the sort of late 50s and into the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, the yes, it's uh it's an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon. Um, and yeah, I think that the relationship between actual Sufi practice and what Idris Shah wrote about is uh, at times tenuous. He definitely had some knowledge um, and he engaged with some of the works of major Sufi figures like uh, Ibn al-Arabi, uh, you know, Al-Ghazali, uh, mm-hmm. Malan Rumi, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he really kind of... Uh, uh, in his work was intent on uh, describing Sufism as something that was a more like primordial tradition. In fact, one that he connected with Freemasonry, with Rosicrucianism, uh, mm-hmm. all these things that these things had a common source. And maybe Sufism was this real kind of uh, primordial tradition that uh, then could be accessed. And in so doing, uh, he often kind of dissociated Sufism from its moorings as a part of Islam to be yeah. something that was more accessible to, uh, you know, Western people and uh, something that could be understood through, uh, in particular, like a, a psychoanalytic framework. 
and mm-hmm. yes. and in the course of doing that he was someone who definitely uh, uh gained the interest and, and became uh, an attractive uh person and an attractive source of information for people at that time who were interested in uh sort of the science of the mind and in mm-hmm. uh the hidden powers of the brain and the mysterious uh phenomena of that uh and maybe the strategic potential of that uh stuff um yes an emphasis on strategic yes um, and uh as, as we will kind of get deeper into his biography his sort of uh, associations with people in the mid-20th century uh you know lead all the way right up to the doorstep of mk ultra and uh, a lot of much darker more problematic scientific attempts to uh you know gain some kind of control over the human mind yeah for the purposes of social engineering probably mostly um but uh but to start i don't know should we talk about the I think origins it might be of good i think it might be good to read two things that i thought might be a good uh sort of um two good like uh not bookends but uh maybe uh counter pieces in sort of uh limbing shah's personality is that obituary yeah um i I don't actually know where it was i found that posted on the alt sophie usenet form but obviously that gives like an interesting overview of his life and i think that uh is an interesting sort of uh counter piece to the Moore article um, that was uh, written by a uh, scholar, James Moore, who was mm-hmm. a pretty vociferous a critic of Shaw. And, uh, so one is like a very glowing uh, appraisal of him, and the other mm-hmm. one is uh, n- not glowing. <laughs> not glowing. Um, do you uh, want me to read the, the glowing one first? Yeah, why not? And I'll read okay. the not glowing one. <laughs> sure. Okay. So... List the accomplishments and achievements of Idris Shah, and they begin to seem like the work of many men, probably because in our pessimistic society, as he often described it, we do not expect such prodigious capabilities in a single individual. One of his lives, as it were, was as the author of more than 35 books and over 100 academic monographs. The books included 20 best-selling titles on Sufism, of which he was, of which he was the great living exemplar, which so far sold 15 million copies in 12 languages. That would have been enough for most single lifetimes, but he was also director of studies for the Institute of Cultural Research, an educational charity which researched and published materials on cross-cultural patterns of human thought and behavior. He was advisor, too, to a number of monarchs and heads of state. He was actively involved in a cluster of other enterprises, academic, humanitarian, scientific, and commercial. He was a founder member of the Club of Rome, Hmm. a governor of the Royal Humane Society and the Royal Hospital and Home for Incurables. And not least, he was a family man and father. Though he seemed the epitome of Englishness in speech and bearing, belonged to the Athenium and the Garrick Clubs, and lived for many years in a large Regency house near Tunbridge Wells, Shaw was in fact born in Simla, India in 1924, into a distinguished Hashemite family which traces its ancestry and titles, confirmed and attested by doctors of Islamic law in 1970, back to the Prophet Muhammad. His, his inalienable titles included Badshah, Sovereign, Emir, Sirdar, General, and then there was Sharif, translatable as Prince of the Blood, and Hadrat, which means Holy Presence. His Scottish mother met his father, the writer and savant Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah, when he was a medical student in Edinburgh. 
and went to live with him in the Afghan highlands in Pakman, the stronghold and fiefdom of the family. From the start, the young Shah was at home in both east and west, educated, as his father before him, by private tutors in Europe and the Middle East, and through wide-ranging travel and personal encounters, the series of journeys, in fact, that characterized Sufi education and development. He was briefly at St. Catherine's College, Oxford, and though he discontinued the course of study there, he was always amused that that university, like so many others around the world, incorporated his books into their essential curricula. In keeping with Sufi tradition, his life was essentially one of service. His friends and associates included soldiers, hmm, scientists, artists, writers, thinkers, businessmen, the high-achieving, the famous, the royal, but equally they included as many, if not more, of the obscure and humble. And in everything he did, he exemplifies the way of the Sufi. It was his contention that people educated as he was, and as he attempted to educate others, could become multifaceted, high-achieving, dedicated to the service of others, and also be funny, entertaining, and in the best sense, ordinary. He was, for instance, an unparalleled storyteller, and was also an excellent cook. People lucky enough to get an invitation to one of his fabled parties would fly in from all over the world. He was also frequently to be found combing through boot fairs and junk shops, even in the last months of his life, looking for, given his vast knowledge of such things, frequently finding rare and valuable antiques of both East and West. His knowledge and interest seemed limitless. He could rage in the face of negativity and willful foolishness, but was more usually warm, approachable, and encouraging. People who benefited professionally from his knowledge have described a range of capacities he himself would never have bothered to draw attention to. A musicologist, for example, says he helped her decipher ancient Egyptian songs unheard for 3,500 years and subsequently broadcast on the BBC. A scientist honored during World War II for his inventions in naval radar claims that years ago Shaw helped him in the research and development of his pioneer patents in air ionization. One of Britain's leading architects says that a nudge from Shaw sent him in a completely unexpected direction in his career, dramatically improving the quality and usefulness of his work. This was characteristic. When it was appropriate, Shaw would nudge and hint, throw some ball from his huge storehouse of knowledge and see who could catch it. Shaw's knowledge and activities took place in so many different areas of specialization and in so many countries that friends and sometimes even family were uh, uh, were aware of what he was doing purely on a need-to-know basis. So an account such as this inevitably refracts a very limited and Western view. The concealment was in part a mixture of modesty, discretion, and an unwillingness to waste time, and part a refusal to indulge anything that smacked even faintly of gossip and self-serving. Shaw himself and those around him were masters of disinformation. <laughs> For example, when in 1967 Robert Graves, a longtime friend, published his new translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and Shaw was bringing to the subject, attacked him by association, and even traveled to Afghanistan to collect ammunition against him and his family, unaware of the tradition there of protecting the Hashemite family from idle curiosity, they were fed all kinds of tall and ridiculous tales, which they gave unchecked to the press in an attempt to discredit him. But such attacks were neutralized by the warmth and weight of other scholars, far more eminent than the critics, who sprang to Shaw's defense. His public and formal work as director of studies for the Institute of Cultural Research began when Shaw was in his 30s. Such scholarly criticism was invited to lecture at various seats of learning, including <laughs> including Stanford University in America and Geneva University, where he was a visiting professor. The Sufis I love published... how they managed to turn the Omar Khayyam thing into something positive by saying he was a master of di whatever. Anyway, keep D going. Yeah, yeah, like so many things. Um, 
The Sufis, published by Jonathan Cape in 1964, slightly ahead of the surge of interest in metaphysical ideas, pronounced that tradition alive and well, and more or less invited readers to approach its ideas and test them out. The evident sense and common sense most readers found made it clear that here was a sane, authoritative voice in the wilderness of the gobbledygookish mysticism of the 60s. Okay. In all the books that followed, when it, whatever he made available always linked realistically into the culture to which it was offered. Through Octagon Press, the publishing company he founded to keep these books in print after mainstream publishers might drop them from their lists, he also established a broad historical and cultural context for Sufi thought and action. Through Octagon, he also disseminated, in a range of books, an enormous amount of little-known information about Afghanistan— foreseeing that such documentation would provide a crucial record in the aftermath of that country's tragic devastation. During the Afghan-Russian War, he risked his life more than once on missions inside Afghanistan and with the Mujahideen. Already in his 60s, he entered the country secretly. Had he been betrayed to the Russians, it would have been an enormous and absolutely justified propaganda coup. Uh, editor's note, sorry. In the event, uh, his best-selling novel, Kara Kush, was based on fact, incorporating his first-hand knowledge of the stupendous courage of the Afghan people and the appalling atrocities inflicted upon them. And he was not above tweaking the Russian bear's tail by embedding tidbits of secret intelligence in his fiction, which nobody was supposed to know, such as the telephone number of the KGB. About a year after his last visit to Afghanistan, in the late spring of 1987, Shah suffered two successive and massive heart attacks. Sick as he was, his hilarious and hair-raising analysis of the behavior of the medical profession and his capacity to conserve himself and still work was an eye-opener to those around him. His, position, his physicians told him he had only 8% heart function remaining and could not expect to survive, but over the next nine years, in between bouts of weakness, pain, further illness, and frequent hospitalization, he produced further books and worked with characteristic dedication, seriousness, humor, and lightheartedness, teaching and advising the now necessarily depleted but still large number of people who approached him, as well as actively directing his enterprises and preparing those who would succeed him. He showed, as he had done all his life, how much it is possible for a single individual to achieve in the face of towering obstacles. By their nature, newspaper obituaries focus on public record, but it is necessary to say that Idris Shah's visible achievements, however profound and wide-ranging, may really have been the very least of his impact. His purpose and knowledge, his kindness, his seemingly limitless patience and generosity, the warmth of his companionship, the perceptive zany humor, and a range of wickedly accurate accents which could send serious-minded adults rolling on the floor in laughter, his sheer understanding and sanity also operated invisibly in the realm of the human heart. The thousands of people who were his students and friends, and others who encountered him however briefly, were probably all affected in a degree and dimension for which it is hard to find words. It is impossible to assess his influence, and his legacy is incalculable. The poet laureate Ted Hughes once wrote that the Sufis must be, quote, the biggest society of sensible men there has ever been on earth. Idris Shah was indeed a sensible man. He was also, it is said, the Sufi teacher of the age. Yeah, I love wow. how spooky he comes off, like, even in this, like, glowing uh, write-up. <laughs> it, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, and this is, like, a thing that's just, like, uh, so common with, like, these, like, you know, uh, unscholarly, like, descriptions of, like, all of his books are just full of being, like, the Sufis, the Sufis, which is, like, <laughs> such a widespread, diverse phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Like, to say that 
it's the biggest like i mean of course ted hughes is not a good shot like i mean he, but he would say something like that and like this is the kind of idea that he promoted that like mm-hmm. these are the highest like humanistic rationalists like there are like sufis who would just be like piercing their genitals like running around naked <laughs> like you know like they like it's not something that like immediately strikes you as being like it, there were there weren't all like clones of this you know uh english gentleman who's Urbane, of yeah job. yes exactly yeah. exactly um it's an extremely diverse like phenomenon that includes like a lot of ecstatic uh practices and things like but whatever anyway so yeah uh the octagon thing is very interesting in light of the the gurdjieff connection and mm-hmm. in light of our last uh episode on the 09a uh because you know we'll get into some of the gurdjieff stuff actually now as i read this uh more thing but uh you know one of gurdjieff's big things was the enneagram which is like a nine pointed uh diagram yeah and uh, the octagon shaw wrote is like actually a sort of way to occult this nine pointed shape in in many contexts kind of like a a little bit like a trapezoid yes exactly the same Mm. or like a yeah, the same way you can draw a pentagram within a pentagon, you know, this uh, sometimes can. Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed that he was. Or, you know. I, I noticed that he was very into enneagrams, which now are like the new hot thing. Like, if if astrology and Myers Briggs personality tests aren't enough for you, you can amp it up and go for your, you know, enneagram of personality, um, which assigns like a numerical, uh, it, it, which is a typology of nine interconnected personality types. Yeah. And uh, I think I did it once as a lark, but uh, it it was hard for yeah. me to kind of like wrap my head around like why this is. But anyways, well, he was uh, very ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, the Enneagram stuff is all like Gurdjieff uh, uh, stuff. I mean, we really should do an episode on Gurdjieff. We got to make sure that we actually do like a Blavatsky and Gurdjieff, like uh, Blavatsky and Gurdjieff respectively episodes because they're such big topics that I could just easily see them not like getting a dedicated episode when maybe they really sure. should. Sure. Uh, they they anyway, pop yeah. up so uh, often in all of these different stories. It really is kind of a discrete sort of web of influence. Mm-hmm. you don't have to go as far as you might think um yeah yeah i'm even um, looking at the uh, enneagram uh there's an enneagram figure on the wikipedia page that looks extremely similar if not identical to the order of nine angles like sigil um yes it is it's extremely similar and extremely yeah. similar to what aquino drew in the book that he thought was an 09a plagiarism of him of course in his uh, uh, okay okay uh, endless yeah. narcissism but uh <laughs> yeah like uh but yeah even in the commanding self which uh i linked maybe that uh you looked at for this like he talks about the enneagram being disguised as two superimposed squares you know an octagon with the space in the middle representing the ninth point so anyway uh yeah uh he was it's an interesting thing especially in light of some of the other stuff that he he read about but anyway uh and or you know his life story but uh just to give it an overview of a a, a, a more critical take on on shah we'll read this uh, james moore write-up which was actually in the gurdjieff journal uh because even though uh adrian shah kind of assimilated a lot of uh gurdjieff's following as sort of a new age figure who was influenced a lot by like the quote unquote, like Eastern tradition, uh, a lot of Gurdjieffians uh, were upset uh, at him for various reasons, which you'll hear about anyway. So this is uh, published in the Gurdjieff journal. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, Neo-Sufism, the case of Idris Shah by James Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the backwater where modern sensibilities are impinged on by a refurbished Sufism is a vexed and peculiar one. 
Erudition sits uneasily with popularization. Spiritual leaders of a stature almost forgotten in the West are jostled by impudent careerists, and the erratic pattern of translation lends a disproportionate influence to the towering minds of Ibn Arabi and Jalaluddin Rumi. Our contemporary British scene affords few more successful figures than Idris Abu Tahir Shah, a few more, and few more pitiful. For 25 years, Shah, Shah died in 1996, editor's note, has been lit, as by St. Elmo's fire, with a nimbus of exorbitant adulation, an adulation he himself has fanned, an adulation which has not failed to arouse, in quieter Islamic, literary, academic, and Gurdjieffian circles, a largely unheeded contradiction. The coterie of serviceable journalists, editors, critics, animators, broadcasters, and travel writers, which gamely choruses Shah's praise, is entitled to enjoy undisturbed its special value judgment, where, however, more eminent anthropologists, oh, sorry, apologists, Apologists. Yeah, I, I don't know why I read anthropologists there. Anyway, eminent uh, ha- apologists have made debatable assertions of quote-unquote fact, uh, and where the traditional orientation of Sufism and indeed the canon of truth have suffered distortion, certain caveats concerning Shah must be refreshed. In 1975, Doris Lexing brought to a climax her long years of enthusiasm in a Guardian article of reckless, re- reckless ardor, appropriately entitled, If You Knew Sufi... In this hagiography, no other noun will serve, Shah was advertised as a saintly but genial polymath who had attended several Western and Eastern universities, commanded 60 million adherents, and quite disinterestedly dispensed the, quote, secret wisdom. Idris Shah is one, is one of these, parentheses, great Sufi masters, and from his birth has been prepared for the specific task of establishing this teaching here in the West. An elitist spiritual education is one of Shah's two main planks. The second, echoed by Robert Graves, adduces Cecilia from the Sufi initiatic chain. Idris Shah Said happens to be in the senior male line of descent from the Prophet Muhammad and to have inherited the secret mysteries from the caliphs, his ancestors. He is, in fact, a grand sheikh of the Sufi Tariqa. Well, of course, like, <laughs> there is no single one. But anyway, like, this, yeah. Yeah, this guy and was... And like, there are, uh, I think maybe they will go on... Yeah, they probably yeah. will go on to say uh, there are no direct male yeah. descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. Right. There's no direct male descendants, only through Fatima are there any male descendants, which probably uh, okay. is what they mean in saying that he's a side. But anyway, like, yeah. Probably. It's uh, it's like Robert Graves definitely got uh, taken for a fool by this guy. Uh, yeah, and we can definitely go into that later. But and, and he was uh, a big part of the whole uh, uh, Omar Khayyam thing. But anyway, yeah. uh, such claims by such claimants deserve the compliment of attentive scrutiny and necessarily invite discreet interrogation of Shah's antecedents. <laughs> So he's definitely uh, going the subliminal jihad route now and going into his family uh, mm-hmm. in a section yeah, called Shah's Origins. It. It's just Shah's it. pretension to be a Syed, in common incidentally with a million or more putative descendants of Muhammad uh, and his younger grandson Hussein. Um, so yeah, exactly, through Fatima. Um, but yeah, like uh, this is, a, like I said, it's a very common thing. Maybe conceded grosso modo without his conferring on him the spiritual authority he implies. But the wilder boast of his posterity, that he springs from Abraham's loins and from the last of the Sassanid kings, belong to the melancholy area of creative genealogy. And indeed, insofar as they rely on his vaunted place in this, quote, senior male line of descent from Muhammad, they labor under the unconsidered difficulty that all three sons of the prophet died in infancy. Shah's traceable paternity places him within an obscure 
obscure Afghan clan from Pugman, a resort 50 miles from Kabul. Ironically enough, his great-great-grandfather, Muhammad Shah, was awarded the title John Fishan Khan, the Zealot, in uh, 1840 for supporting British interests against his Muslim co-religionists. If it is over-censorious to call him, as L.P. Elwell Sutton has, a, quote, ruffian, it is preposterous to call him, as Idris has, chief of the Hindu Kush Sufis. The specific (laughs) Sufic link claimed by Idris is first defined and rendered remotely plausible in the person of his grandfather, Amjad Ali Shah, the self-styled Nawab of Sardana, and uh, Naskbandi Pagmani. The Naqshbandiya uh, were an important Central Asian Sunni tariqa associated with the name of Bahadin Naqshband, uh, yet Amjad Ali's religious dedication is less well attested than his dissipation uh, of the family's estates at Sartana near Delhi. Iqbal Ali Shah, a very sus person in and of himself, um, the son of Amjad Ali and the father of Idris settled in Britain before the First World War only to meet rebuffs. Behind his compensatory inventions of private conversations with King George V lay his failure at Edinburgh Medical School and, equally predictable, his ignominious treatment as a son-in-law. Charming and personal, Iqbal was a lifelong sufferer from Munchausen syndrome, a condition first diagnosed in 1929 when he tried to compromise the P.M. Ramsey E. MacDonald, uh, and the Foreign Office investigation revealed there uh, was hardly a world of truth in his writings. Uh, Towards Sufism, Iqbal's stance was ambivalent. He did write one innocuous, innocuous popularization, Islamic Sufism. However, he dipped his pen in the inkpot of Voltaire when alluding to the Rifai Mevlevi uh, and Ansaria Tarkas, and he positively applauded Mustafa Kemal's abolition of the Fez and the Turkish Dervis orders on 2nd September uh, 1925, which is really something to, like, uh, you know, uh, support what Ataturk did. Um, mm. As to uh, Orthodox Islam, Iqbal's conduct over the notorious halal meat scandal in Buenos Aires in 1946 provoked the British ambassador to describe him as, quote, a swindler. Uh, so I had to look this up. This is not notorious anymore. I don't know if it was when this article was written, but yeah. I guess what he did basically was claim that a bunch of, he was sent there to get a bunch of halal meat. Uh, and he represented it as being halal, but it was not. Um, so that was the, the scandal, basically. Um, however powerful and unusual were the influences to which Idris Shah was innocently exposed in his formative years, they were hardly Sufic. So, you know, uh, powerful and unusual, certainly, but yeah. Uh, Idris Abu Tahir Shah was born in Simla on 16th June 1924. Before long, he was brought to England where he grew up, a timid child at North Dean, Brighton Road, Belmont, Sutton. His boyhood with his brother, Omar Ali Shah, was uneventful, though even in Belmont, not entirely insulated from pockets of inexcusable prejudice against Anglo-Indians. In uh, August 1940, when German bombing began in earnest, the family evacuated from London to Oxford, where Idris II were three uh, academically undistinguished years at the city of Oxford High School in New Inn Hall Street, evidently crowned and included his formal education. To the decade uh, 1945 to 1955, Idris assigns his Wanderjar, uh, uh, assiduously cultivating the impression of far-flung and audacious travels in Asia as a, quote, student of traditional Sufi sheikhs. He may have indeed used his father's oriental contacts. Incongruously enough, however, it was to Uruguay that he went in winter 1945 as secretary of his father's halal meat mission and to England uh, that he returned in October 1946. And as is certainly uh, apropos to this period is that Shah has made portentous and inherently improbable claims without elucidating and indeed largely clouding the biographical record. 
Our subject emerges somewhat from the shadows of the publication of his first books, which are important in indicating the voltage and orientation of his mind, before he gains support from literary agents and research assistants, and crucially important in situating him vis-a-vis -vis Islam and Sufism, before he had refurbished his, quote, Sufic persona. Shah's first book, Oriental Magic, will survive, if at all, as the prototype of his recourse to antecedent writing, and of his pretensions as a mystery figure. It finds him, at 32, primarily concerned with matters like, quote, Mungo, the ectoplasmic force, <laughs> garters for distances, and Himalayan leopard powder. Only Chapter 7, The Fakirs and Their Doctrines, approaches the Sufic theme and is replete with errors. His ensuing travel memoir, Destination Mecca, although intrinsically slight, is certainly more important for its unconscious self-deception. What did we find? Regrettably, we find a Taurus who, Shah's own words, had lived, quote, for, had lived for years in the West, a mind embarrassingly superficial and banal, lacking the least resonance of religious feeling, a photographer obsessed with his robot F2.8 rapid-action camera, <laughs> exultant at his furtive and sacrilegious snapshots of the Kaaba, a materialist repelled by the, quote, unhygienic bodies of the Muslim brethren, but intrigued by the Mecca United football team, a man meeting <laughs> his first practicing Sufis around the age of 30, only to find their sacred books unfamiliar. Familiar. These were the actual dancing dervishes of the Bektashi order in action. I would have given anything to have had my camera with me. Uh, <laughs> Alike in his conflation boy goes of the to Mecca. Yeah. <laughs> Alike in his conflation of the Bektashi and Malevi Tarikas and his voyeuristic reaction, the real Idris Shah exposes himself. Uh, this section is called Marketing Sufism. The opening of the 1960s found Shah veering towards occultism and acting as a secretary companion to Dr. Gerald Gardner, director of the Museum of Magic and Witchcraft in the Isle of Man. So this is basically the founder of Gardnerian Wicca, uh, like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the creator basically of Wicca. Yeah, at, at, uh, one time, uh, at one time, uh, a contender to become the European head of the Ordo Templo Orientis uh, and yes. a friend of uh, Alistair yeah. Crowley. And uh, yeah, Idris Shah wrote his authorized biography under a pen name because he did not want to be associated with uh, witchcraft. But yes, uh, and anyway, not, not even a pen name, but the name of one of Gardner's high Wiccan priests, uh, which leads me to believe that he was especially trying to conceal his uh, involvement. I think he said that he didn't want to be publicly associated with witchcraft. Yeah. Um, and I guess, um, you know. Yeah, although I did see that one Wiccan writer um said or quoted shah as saying like that this would be the religion of the new age although he rationally couldn't comprehend how uh but uh anyway that's you know from uh some wicked book that i couldn't actually track down but i saw uh that quoted um anyway so uh however during this time uh nouveau orientalism was in the air articulated amongst others by dasets suzuki uh pak Sabu, and the maharishi um, and the Sufi niche was temptingly unfilled. People must have labels, Shah concluded. The scramble is to get the right one and then hold on to it. A scramble, certainly, for the assiduous revisionism which yielded him his, quote, grand shake label, generated a corpus of pseudonymous literature, unparalleled in our century for its magnitude, coherence, and ignobility. Shah has conceded his own recourse to pen names without divulging details. Many of his disciples emulate him. Given this obfuscation, it is problematic which of the score or more queerly named authors stylistically and thematically assignable to the Shah school, e.g. Omar Michael Burke, Ph.D., Arkan Darau, Raphael Lefort, Hadrat B.M. Dervish, and so on. <laughs> 
have independent physical existence. Pending investigation is perhaps suffices that none show a scintilla of independent philosophical existence. Shaw School productions date from May 1960, and throughout them Shaw receives, ostensibly from disinterested third parties, intemperate praise. He is Taraka Grand Sheikh Idris Shah Saheb, he is Prince Idris Shah, King Enoch, the Presence, mm. the Studious King, the Incarnation of A. And even Kutub or Axis. Oh, uh-oh. Um, uh-oh. Someone uh, deeply impressed by the idealized Shah was a former Marxist, Doris May Lessing, who, while writing The Golden Notebook, underwent a sort of Damascian conversion. For 20 years, she has remained the spearhead of Shah's defense, again and again pitting, quote, half-truth, irrelevancy, double-think, misquotation, and invention against the scholarship and deadly fairness of Shah's redoubtable critic, Lawrence L.L. Sutton, reader in Persian at Edinburgh University. Innocent of any Oriental tongue, she has plunged deep into debates which turn on a command of medieval Persian. Lacking any indigenous Sufi experience, she has set her judgments against that profound uh, that of profound Sufi thinkers like Professor Said Hosan Nasser. Also kind of like, eh, but anyway. Beyond all <laughs> exasperation, it is impossible not to feel for the Quixotic Mrs. Lessing something akin to regard. Uh, and then this is about Gurdjieff. No single element in Shah's whole life has proved more materially advantageous or psychologically revealing than his stratagem concerning the philosopher savant george ivanovich gurdjieff hardly mm. any had shah school productions appeared it's interesting like the use of pseudonyms and the whole thing it very also similar to david my but anyway oh i was thinking uh, anton long stephen brown yeah, yeah exactly. exactly stephen brown yeah like uh-huh. rachel whatever anyway uh had they uh hardly had shah school productions appeared and they had begun to belittle gurdjieff adding encoded language the preposterous writer that shah who had never even met him had assumed met him had assumed his mantle this campaign reached its apogee in 1966. First came the tasteful fabrication, The Teachers of Gurdjieff by Raphael Lafort, a botched anagram of a real effort. Here, uh, <laughs> young Lafort pretends to have sought out Gurdjieff as uh, teachers in Asia, a chronological absurdity who demanded their former pupil and pointed towards Shah. Next, extrapolating from Gurdjieff's references to a certain Sarmung Brotherhood, Shah School Productions impudently claimed that the Sarmung were extant had one emissary in Europe, a figure strangely redolent of Shah himself. At last, on special problems in the study of Sufi ideas, the reborn Nashkbandi ventured an explicit and attributable statement. Uh, G.I. Gurdjieff left abundant clues to the Sufi origins of virtually every point in his, quote, system, although it belongs more specifically to the Kagawan Nashkbandi form of dervish teaching. Uh, but why Gurdjieff and why 1966? Uh, to explore this, he mar- uh, must briefly advance the singular figure of J.G. Bennett. John Godolphin Bennett, Go Dolphin, what an interesting name. Uh, Was a complex, gifted, sincere, and indefatigable eclectic searcher, strangely deficient in common sense. Having been successfully, uh, successfully, successively the pupil of P.D. Uspensky, Gurdjieff himself, Jean de Salzman, H.H. Lanz, Iman Chiku, Abdullah Dagestani, Pak Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, Shiva Paribaba, and even received him to the Roman Catholic Church, he wow. wondered at the age 69 if he was making sufficient headway. His predicament was compounded because he himself had accumulated numerous and uh, serious following with a prestigious house at Coombe Springs. Bennett, with his messianic and millenarian promptings, was that uh, Rara Avis, a guru in search of a guru. And from 1962, when the Shah School began propagating his Gurdjieffian illusions, the hook had been temptingly baited for him. How Bennett took that bait, how the older man became persuaded that Shah had come direct from Gurdjieff's Sarmung Monastery with a declaration of the people of the tradition, how Shah pressed Bennett, 
the caravan is about to set out to give him Coombe Springs outright, how Bennett agonized and in January 1966 complied, how Shaw promptly repudiated Bennett and sold the establishment for £100,000, how Coombe Springs with its sub-Gothianum, uh, Dodge... Jami Chinatra? I guess, passed under the bulldozers, how Shaw with the proceeds founded... Uh, well, I guess they had an interesting uh, architectural structure there anyway... Uh, how Shaw, with the proceeds, founded the Society for Organizing Unified Research and Cultural Education, uh, Source, <laughs> and the Society for Understanding the Foundation of Ideas, Sufi, and established himself at Langdon House, Langdon Green, near Tundridge Wells. All this defies both pressy and belief, but is indelibly recorded in Bennett's autobiography, Witness. Wow. Um, Just to toss in there, uh, because they they didn't mention it here, that the way that J.G. Bennett came into contact with Gurdjieff was, I think he met him in Istanbul in, I guess, the period right after the Russian Revolution and the end of World War One, And J.G. Bennett was there because he was the head of British intelligence in Istanbul and then, you know, met this guru and went on a quest. So uh, that's another subtext to, like, keep in mind here that yeah. this guy, another, uh, you know, convergence point between intelligence services. And back then it would have, the British were the premier intelligence service. Um, yeah. You know, Pre-CAA and MI6 yeah. and whatever. But definitely uh within two years this is the robert graves part the quote people of the tradition had claimed an even older more vulnerable more eminent victim the poet robert graves also a big like occult figure who was a really close friend of shah uh his ill-fated work the rubaiyat of omar khayyam a new translation with critical commentaries was written with and at the instigation of general omar ali shah but in aid of idris shah's highly tendentious thesis that khayyam was quote the sufi voice Entering the spirit of the thing, Iqbal, who had dismissed Khayyam in 1928 uh, as, quote, the Bacchus with the mind of a Rabelais, now felt happy to endorse his piety. As for poor Graves, his book was exposed by academics as a nullity cubed, a, quote, translation, which was not a translation, but a copy of Victorian commentary, of the 12th century, quote, John Fishan Khan, MS, which did not exist, of a composite stanzaic poem by Khayyam, which he did not write. As Graves labored hopelessly to defend himself, Idris twice promised to produce the elusive manuscript from Afghanistan, only to renege finally on 30th October 1970. No manuscript, no photocopy, no detail of format or location, no substantive text, no colophon ever transpired. And Graves, like Bennett, reaped the harvest of his credulity. So basically, they said they had some, like, secret manuscript of Omar Khayyam, but what they came out with was a copy of like a victorian uh like you know stanzaic poem which Mm -hmm. wasn't by omar khayyam at all (laughs) um cool yeah so anyway summing up uh with shah now over 60 it is not too early to take stock Yes, he has made a contribution of sorts in popularizing his invertebrate humanistic, quote, Sufism, and in pleasing the Mrs. Lessings of the world. It is not nothing, but consider the cost, the rearing of an unsavorly pseudonymous literature, the clouding of Gray's reputation, and the injection into the world's biographical dictionaries of a false perspective of Gurdjieff. 
Yes, Shah is affluent and famous now and a member of the Athenaeum, but Bahadin Nashban sought only spiritual riches and forbade his followers to record the least word about him. Yes, Shah has brought energy and resource to his self-aggrandizement, but where is the evidence of conscience or real Dasein? Uh, is then not Shah's life, all in all, as opaque in terms of genuine Sufism as it is transparent in terms of Adlerian psychology? Beyond this ad hominem critique, inescapable as an antidote to Shah's personality cult, what of his work? Many people will enjoy his dervish anecdotes and Maul Nasruddin stories, unaware how cavalierly they lean on unacknowledged and out-of-copyright sources. But their spiritualizing action on middle-brow European readers is surely nil. Plucked from their true cultural, linguistic, and didactic context, and from the rich oral tradition which gave them life, they have been ignobly reduced to the level of, quote, the hundred best after-dinner stories. <laughs> and if they are truly exemplary tales, they are marvelously at variance with Shah's own example. Idris Abu Tahir Shah and his Sufism await judgments immeasurably beyond the competence of religion today, the magazine where it was originally published. Mm -hmm. The judgment of history, if not the judgment foretold in Surah 70, uh, Surah 70, <laughs> uh, 8. Wow, okay, yeah, so yeah. basically the apocalypse. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but some uh, provisional comment may be ventured without malice that his is a Sufism with Baha Adin Nakhshvand would find unrecognizable and repugnant, that his is a, quote, Sufism without self-sacrifice without self-transcendence, without the aspiration of gnosis, without tradition, without the prophet, without the Quran, without Islam, and without God. Merely that. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shots very much fired. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah. So those are like two uh, countervailing images of this guy. Um, yeah. So, so uh, he, all he around, did... very murky, uh, sus individual, and uh, in the words of the guy, a person who praised him, a master of disinformation. When you see my corpse has been carried, don't cry for my living. I'm not living. I'm arriving at eternal love. When you leave me in the grave, don't say goodbye. Remember, a grave is only a curtain for the paradise behind. You will only see me descending into a grave. Now watch me rise. How can there be an end when the sun sets or the moon goes down? It looks like the end. It seems like a sunset, but in reality, it is a dawn. It's kind of amazing how you can yeah the the coexistence in that first obituary of. Uh, going on and on and on about his humility some of the things that were actually in that were like more like uh damning or like uh you know they were uh more conspicuously like you know uh like they reflected worse on him than some of the stuff that Moore said i felt you know like, yeah yeah i mean like... i often feel that way that, that that's why i think it's valuable to read uh sources that are you know, uh, in support, you know, if you're reading a book or, um, an article or a take or something by somebody 
who has the position you don't agree with, um, the propensity for people to, yeah, inadvertently uh, expose themselves is is pretty common. And so, you know, um, you basically yeah. can... It, when people, especially when there's kind of this, like, force field of, of respect and an aura of spiritual sophistication around this guy, um, I think that they feel definitely in the writing that obituary that he's sort of beyond reproach or you know the haters uh it says something about you know they don't even have as good of credentials as the people that did like him and which like makes me think okay well like the most elite people are sus and that's why they like him because he's up to something um yeah Um, and also like that's just like not supported by anything you know it doesn't that's true too you know it's yeah um it's uh yeah it's really like uh it's i've heard so many things like i've even heard that like his sort of guru persona like the that was you know meant to be seen through so the whole reason why he ever like gave any oil to the whole cult of personality was so that he could actually you know decondition you from the cult of personality and that type of thing you know so it's just like an endless like you know it's uh like uh turtles all the way down you know um (laughs) like uh yeah it's uh yeah 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 it's really like he hadn't like i think that moore's diagnosis is really accurate that he was hanging out with uh gerald gardner and he was researching uh sort of like mushroom eating ceremonies and and witchcraft on Mm -hmm. the isle of man and then like uh from robert graves he got the idea there was this niche for sufis and he just kind of mastered this sort of persona something i noticed like reading his works is that he'll be like uh you know someone will be like why uh uh like are all like are there all these problems in the world you know why can we never solve these problems and he'll be like let me tell you the story of the donkey and the camel the donkey you know was always rushing everywhere and he tripped over his own feet while the camel had his eyes fixed on the horizon like you know go on this long sort of parable and ultimately it'll be like okay well the donkey is like you know rushing and not looking ahead and the camel is looking at the horizon so basically what he said amounts to the same thing as just saying like they're short-sighted but it's like people are short-sighted but it yeah. sounds like so much more mystical. It uh, sounds and... so profound. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I even like... remembered. Um, I I I probably heard this like multiple times over the years from any kind of variety of like new agey adjacent spaces. But like the parable of the elephant is yeah, something that right. I feel like pops up a lot in like pop culture. Maybe one of his most famous yeah, parables. He probably like... like popularized that. I mean, that parable goes like that's older than him. That is definitely one that he like cribbed from like a, a Sufi or even older like Indic tradition. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, definitely he probably contributed to popularizing that and making that the kind of the cliche that it is that it is now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He really seen that that. And you're right about the um, the way that those kind of parables function in a kind of pseudo mystical, like pseudo philosophical, like whoa, man, like that. It, it's like the it's a kind of like the sort of spiritual, um, uh, parabolistic like version of a TED talk. Yeah, like, it is. Let me tell you a story. He would absolutely be giving TED talks. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. He would 100 <laughs> percent be giving TED talks today. And in fact, it's interesting because 
uh, we both watched that documentary they did for the BBC in the seventies, Dreamwalkers. Where yeah, you can we'll put that in the see... in the show notes, or you could find it on yeah. YouTube. It's interesting yeah. to watch for sure. It gives you a yeah. good idea of his kind of like pop guru status at that time in the early seventies. A few of his uh, sus friends pop up, uh, including William Sargent, uh, who, like we were talking about before, as like a really spooky, like brainwashing expert uh, and like MK Ultra doctor, basically. Yes, as soon um, I feel like I probably have come across this guy's name before, but um, I needed to definitely like get refreshed on him. But as soon as this guy pops up in the BBC documentary, and they're like sitting very close to each other on a couch, and this guy just has a kind of old old empire like mid-century uh sinister vibe to him and he immediately starts talking about um i actually i think you yeah you put a link to like the transcript here he says uh the people who can be got at are the normal people and shaw says yes yes and the sergeant says you are normal because you do accept a large amount of the tenets of the people amongst which you live uh and um uh, it says Dr. William Sargent is head of psychological medicine at St. Thomas's Hospital. He's well known for his special study of conditioning and unconscious brainwashing. <laughs> and this is the real money quote of like, I have no doubt at all that suppose Hitler had conquered England and Hitler had then run all the public schools and all the secondary education that perhaps 70% of the new generation in England could have been brought up with Hitlerite viewpoints. But although <laughs> the normal people are, get edible, there are always a population of a group of people who are either mad, near mad, or what we call obsessive, who can't be got at by those techniques. And Shaw is like, so we have an interesting quote. situation of paradox. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Really? Where, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, interesting situation of paradox uh yeah it's really funny like i i also was stricken by that quote just like i have no doubt at all that like i bet you have no doubt at all because like you are currently involved and like you know <laughs> like working like, with, with joseph mangale yeah, exactly. you fucking psycho <laughs> um, yeah um, yeah like i uh i know that people could be brought up with hit light viewpoints because we're currently indoctrinating people to hit light viewpoints, but, uh, <laughs> yeah you yeah, like, sure does uh, know um, he does make an interesting point, actually, which I feel like is a, a good subliminal jihad point, which is about how, like, uh, Isaac Newton... Basically, he's saying Isaac Newton was a bit of a crackpot, really. Uh, <laughs> and, like, his real fixation was that... Uh, was the prophecies in the Book of Daniel, which we mentioned before, and the, and the seven-headed beast and that, uh, yes. you know. But, and gravity was all, like, incidental to that type of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, I feel like that is sort of something that Shah was trying to kind of that was kind of the appeal of shah for people like Sargent, um like that he there's a good quote that i think kind of sums this up in uh his special problems uh in the study of sufism i think it's mm -hmm. called is the full title uh special problems in the study of sufi ideas and he says uh if we say sounds have an effect upon man making it possible other things being equal for him to have experiences beyond the normal he may persuasively insist that this is mere occultism, primitive nonsense of the order of Om Mani Padme Hum, Abracadabra and the rest, or Abrahadabra, as Carly said, but anyway, uh, but uh, taking into account not objectivity, but simply the current phase of accepted thought, we can instead say to him, the human brain, as you are doubtless aware, may be likened to an electronic computer. It responds to impacts or vibrations of sight, sound, touch, and so on, in certain predetermined or programmed ways. It is oh. held by some of the sounds roughly, repre roughly represented by the signs S-U-F, 
are among those for reactions which the brain is, or may be, programmed. Uh, he may very well now be able to assimilate this wretched simplification into his existing pattern of thinking. So basically he's <laughs> saying that, like, you know, if we look at this sort of uh, things that seem primitive or occultic, uh, from a different sort of more uh, psychological modern perspective perspective mm -hmm. then we can see like the real uh, idea like wisdom that is operating under it I think that was like extremely appealing to people like uh, William Sargent or there's also the Rand Corporation guy which was my sort of link to the TED talk thing where he sort of said like uh, that the big thing for him was uh, the idea of interdisciplinary uh, thought, you know, and that, that's what mm -hmm. TED Talks really are all about, is bringing people from different fields together to sort of share, like, little micro-insights. Um, yeah, little, you know, so little get, like, all nuggets. these different ideas floating around across fields, which is, and that's something that, like, of thinking outside the box that is, you know... Uh, thinking the outside the box, what, uh, what is there a bigger kind of business cliche than... No, yeah, there isn't, and, yeah. like, that really is, like, the thrust of all these little stories and ideas that uh, Idris Shah is trying to... Like, uh, one of the Mullah Nasruddin stories is, like, uh, he's lost his house keys or something, and uh, he's looking around outside for them, and uh, someone's like, what's going on, you know? And he's like, I lost my house keys. And uh, then people are like, well, then did you lose them outside? And he's like, no, but there's more light out here for me to look, you know? So it's, like, the... Uh, you know, like he's uh, looking and what's more. I mean, I think the Rand Corporation hmm. guy like took the wrong lesson from this or like a weird lesson from it, but he was saying he was looking where it's more comfortable to him. Although you'd think his house would be more comfortable. I think it's like, you know, there's more light is the idea. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. The point yeah. is that like, or it's more exposed and less of a, you know, I guess maybe it's it's more, maybe light signifies knowledge. You can really go very deep in these stories with There's a lot reading, into that. Yeah. It, it also, um, um, that, that, that kind of, um, that Rand Corporation thing and the study of like interdisciplinary kind of like, you know, knowledge and stuff like that reminded me a lot of like one of his main American acolytes who is the, um, the psychology professor Robert Ornstein at Stanford University who actually um, founded uh, something called the Institute for the Study of Human Knowledge which is like very yeah. similar to the organization. He was super close with Shah I think like an actual like real court. Yeah guy. yeah so there was a direct line into Silicon Valley uh, and specifically Stanford University psychology research like in the 1970s uh, with Idris Shah and that one of the things that um, Ornstein actually uh, his kind of biggest like breakthroughs in you know uh, psychological research was dealing with like the split brain kind of uh, dichotomy of like right and left brain you know um, cerebral hemispheres and how mm -hmm. there were like different faculties I mean it's kind of it's like a commonly accepted idea today that you know there's like yeah. left brain functions and, and right brain functions he wrote a famous book called the psychology of consciousness in 1972 um, that basically uh, um, but uh, after that um, became throughout the 70s became much more interested in uh merging like his psychological work with the ideas of modern sufism as expressed by idris shah who he met in the yeah. 1960s um so there's a lot of like you know kind of with all the mk kind of stuff going and like changing images of man 
and SRI things, um, and just like the overarching idea, as Josh Harris said, you're just a wet CPU, man. You know, like, <laughs> like yeah. that idea is like so common and it's like it, it pops up in like BF Skinner's kind of approach to psychology and that we're just this like like wet computer box that responds to that responds to stimuli and like that's it. So you can kind of see how um, people maybe wanted to formulate new forms of quote-unquote spirituality that were more um at their core even if they weren't conscious of this uh more in sync with that kind of wet cpu conception of humanity and like consciousness Um, yeah exactly and finding a way to reconcile these things together which meant basically dropping a lot of the like actual religious underpinnings of something like sufism and yeah. like san deracinating it so that it could like fit comfortably into the paradigms of modernity that they were supposedly trying to transcend yeah which basically would by any actual like sufi standard would make it impossible like the yes. idea of taking it out of the moorings of islam and, like the practices for instance like the idea that you could be a sufi and not uh pray like or something like that you know mm-hmm. like is well, I guess there are, like, maybe some ideas of people, be, like, transcending the Sharia, like, you know, there are people like that uh, that are, like, talked about or whatever, um, but it's, you know, like, the complete, like, removal of it from that context of the idea that uh, Sufism is more, like, Freemasonry and, like, has less to do with Islam than, like, with Rosicrucianism or Freemasonry. Yeah, I mean, he, like, he is, does know. explicitly make that claim, right? That does, Sufism yeah. predates Islam and all of the Abrahamic religions. Yes, he does. Basically, he's, you know, this whole quest for the primordial tradition is something that is basically like Blavatsky. It's, like, a typical thing in these sort of New Age, uh, you know... Uh, like, that's basically what the whole Gardner witch cult thing is, that there's, like, an older, like, you know, European religion that creates Christianity, which is all about, you know, uh, worshipping this horn god or whatever. And uh, yeah. extremely similar to a certain order of nine angles as well. Yeah, exactly. They have the exact same idea. It's literally the exact same, like, basic premise. Yeah, which is um, kind of, but, it, it takes the same attitude towards Nazism and even, yeah. like, esoteric Hitlerism, that this is actually, this is not something that was kind of cobbled together in the early 20th century or came out of like the late 1800s but actually existed for you know tens of thousands of years and every new age group basically does this as well i mean the whole obsession with like uh ayahuasca and you know uh aztec kind of religion by like you know norte americanos um going down there like carlos castaneda like it's it's so common And to be fair, like, that is, like, something that, uh, I mean, I don't know, like, to what extent, I mean, Christianity does this as well, where they're like, oh, there's typologies of Jesus in the Old Testament, you know, like, uh, we can see Jesus being prophesied in the Old Testament, so, like, really, this is all, like, you know, Jews read this in a completely different way, but this is really all about Jesus. Islam, you Yeah, know, it's in the Nicene Creed, like yeah, like, he rose again like, on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures, uh, of course, yeah. yeah. And there's tons um, of stuff in Islam like that, you know, like, Jesus was Muslim, you know, Christians don't necessarily agree, like, Adam was, like, you know, we see Islam as being, like, part of, like, the fitra, like, this, uh, you know, um, 
and it, like people have that's why there's a common term of like revert you know when people are like uh they you're born muslim and you revert you know oh, uh, yeah, so nice, like nice. uh yeah, yeah. common like, thing um, with with all religions but like yeah, i think there's, there's a difference between yeah there is a, the yes, older yes. religions kind of saying like there's there's kind of a root or a precedent that then like came into fruition and and you know they have the luxury of being around for 1500 to 3000 years so it, it's not they're not under the pressure to be called out for being some kind of new religious movement but still it's still the the difference is the aspect of in islam the idea is not that you know uh jesus was like hiding being muslim the idea (laughs) is that people like failed to understand like you know and they uh you know started to worship him as a god and that was like but the like uh you know that's it's but the idea that like there were these three secret covens or whatever or like this is the secret knowledge that now like you know we're gonna come forward and make it like the whole idea of the occultation is a huge difference where like really there's been the secret thing that now in the new age like we're bringing forward um or like you know maybe we're not fully bringing forward but we're offering maybe a way into uh in some you know so that whole idea is different like uh and unique about yes type of things like the supersessionism is relatively common but there's definitely a unique dimension that makes this image of sufism have more in common with what really as more rightly said was more of idris shah's sort of intellectual background than like real sufism the sort of gardnerian witchcraft and that type of thing um yeah in a way he's doing uh maybe a little bit of an insight role there um yeah well it's interesting (laughs) uh because i'm thinking of someone who he kind of uh held up as being like a uh like uh yeah um yeah actually this is a perfect uh in his book the sufis um itself like you know his famous book that really broke him into the mainstream he uh, quoted this guy, Richard Burton, who was mm-hmm. like a famous... Uh, not the of, actor. But... Not the actor. Richard Francis Burton. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, he was uh, in the 19th century. Not, you know, the guy who played Arthur in Camelot or whatever. He was married um, to Liz Taylor yeah. or whatever. Yeah. He was very much like an insight role type guy where he assumed many different characters, many different personae. He was a Muslim. He was this, he was that you know, uh, as part of his sort of travels and his work, uh, as like a diplomat, um, and an explorer, you know, uh, and, uh, doing all of this stuff for the, for the British government and, uh, the East India company. Um, oh, okay. and, uh, yeah, yeah. That uh, really corporatist monstrosity. Yes. And, uh, he's someone who we, uh, so Shaw writes of him, he quotes him first. He says, Sufism, said Sir Richard Burton, was the Eastern parent of Freemasonry. Whether Burton was a Freemason or not, uh, he was, but anyway, uh, there is no doubt that he was a Sufi. Uh, So, like, anyway, Freemasonry has been upheld by distinguished people in many countries, reviled and persecuted, linked with politics, reduced to the relative informality of staid businessmen's frolics, penetrated by Rosicrucianism, attacked as a Jewish imposter by the Nazis. It would not be seemly for a Freemason to engage upon a public portrayal of any part of the craft's symbolism or beliefs. Indeed, it is more than probable that a member would be under oath of secrecy whereby he must preserve every part of the Brotherhood's workings from all who are not initiated. The source of the mat- of material purporting to be Masonic for the non-member, therefore, is bound to be fairly one-sided. The inner workings of Masonry provided by renegades and probably by opponents of the craft. 
Um, so I feel like he's saying I'm a Freemason in that. Like, I feel like he's kind of like <laughs> winkingly saying like, if someone were a Freemason, like, but anyway, um, See, I can neither confirm nor deny. Well, yeah, I guess in so far uh, as he's saying he's a Sufi, then he is kind of saying that because he's saying that they're the same. Um, but anyway, yes, yeah, so. it, it is a little clever form of trickery that I think we've seen other people kind of employ to sort of dodge a little bit like the whatever they're being accused of being is sort of, well, you don't really understand, you know, yeah. whether it's like the O9A being ne like neo-Nazis or, uh, or Michael Aquino kind of saying, well, no, I'm actually a Setian, not, a yeah. Satan, but he's also kind of a Satanist, but it's right. like not, you know, yeah, um, exactly. It, and they kind it, of like, go like, uh, is like, you know, is this satanic? Is it not? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's all these sort of ciphers and everything, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, to, to sort of explain how this is really like the Kaaba, the cubicle temple of Mecca was rebuilt in 608 AD when Muhammad was 35 years old and five years before he started his teaching. The temple was built with 31 courses of stone and wood. The Sufi said, the Sufi said with earth and sky, 33, um, <laughs> completely unsighted, just like, you know, not, he like forwent footnotes to make it like accessible. But again, you just like say this stuff and it anyway so yeah you can see how this kind of stuff is um yeah yeah you know. uh, do you want to talk about his translation controversies a little bit because it's kind of the most in terms of hard evidence of like catching him with his pants down uh doing bullshit it feels yeah, like well that was basically like the you mean like the omar Khayyam thing that he was kind of yeah i didn't do. get to read too much on it but i guess he he well i guess as you described he did basically uh, misattribute yeah, entire things yeah he totally made up a manuscript and is kind of like his brother was also participating in it but they yeah basically more summarize it like pretty well there's not like that much to it but pretty much like robert graves who was his really good friend and who was really into sufism uh by on his own and kind of uh you know he had this whole idea of the white goddess which is like one of his big books and that was very influential in this kind of like european like pagan new age stuff um and like uh you know sort of like revival and things like that and like uh the kind of celtic uh thing you know yeah. uh he was her name uh, baphomet was she holding the head of klaus von stauffenberg eh, eh, eh. yeah exactly um <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so he was, like, Shah's really good friend, and uh, he had actually written the introduction for the Sufis. There's actually a funny anecdote related to that where, um, you know, in one of uh, Robert Graves' letters, he's talking about, like, writing uh, this thing where he's talking about how he's the grand sheikh of the Sufi Taraka and everything. Uh, but he wrote uh, in one of his letters, like, you know, that was a little bit misleading, you know. Shah, he's one of us, you know, he's not a Muslim personage. Um, uh, yeah, so, yeah yeah like uh it's he, right, he's, one, he's one of the good ones yes yeah. so yeah no uh really it is kind of baphomet uh that he described in the white goddess um it was or it was the onine baphomet anyway is really what he described in the white goddess um and it's like a sort of a primordial european deity who is the white goddess of uh you know birth of love and of death you know uh and uh chill nature spirit a chill yeah, matriarchal kind of a chill na nature yeah, spirit very matriarchal yes uh -huh. um and it's the sort of uh yeah matriarchal like primordial religion anyway but 
Uh, so eventually he got into Sufism, and that kind of uh, led him to uh, posit that maybe there was also like uh, this black goddess as well, like uh, mm. that you know when he was sort of uh, working with with Sean and close sort of uh, simpatico with him, um, and uh, you know he. It's interesting, yeah, like, you know, uh, the kind of people who, um, like, Idris Shah considers Sufis, like, Richard Burton, you know, like, uh, yeah, maybe he was, maybe Richard Burton was interested in Sufism, but it's like, you know, and uh, there is this sort of essential characteristic, and uh, Graves actually wrote uh, that he could tell who was a Sufi, you know, and he met, like, <laughs> some, yeah, he met some woman um and uh i guess his name's cindy uh cindy lara Cohen. um mm -hmm. and you know he sent her a copy of the book with his introduction um and uh he you know uh kind of apparently uh, according to him he saw her um as cindy and as emil uh cindy was like her false identity as a fun-loving alcoholic junkie and emil was her true identity as the black goddess um and okay. uh yes so she had made she made a pact with graves witnessed by shah she was adopted by shah as his as his spiritual sister in a ceremony wow um and uh so she he was like shah you know she has a strange he told him in a letter like she has a strange healing power um and you know now uh but then she was you know like you said kind of an alcoholic junkie so that started to uh create a little bit of problems for their relationship um and graves uh, got upset at shah over that uh because it was her duty as a brother uh it was shah's duty as a brother you know having become one in the ceremony um mm -hmm. anyway so yeah he wrote to him he, uh, graves wrote to shah to me the most important problem in the world is the faithful relation of a woman's being to man's doing and I have myself learned more from her on the subject than from anyone else in the world. So could you. Um, <laughs> but he said, I'm not criticizing or reproaching you. And he closed the letter with a uh, love and baraka, which is like blessings or, you know, sort of. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. But anyway, so he took her to Mexico. Um, okay. And uh, then he wasted like 2000 pounds um and then he returned and uh yeah so i guess that after that they kind of broke up but yeah so after that um he like uh started translating uh for his brother you know uh the rubaiyat of omar Khayyam, which is very famous you know uh i actually like it's funny because the thing about like these sufis that they say like you know like rumi said like uh the whole thing with meet me like he said there's a field beyond uh kufr and islam you know mm -hmm. um like uh or something like that so they'll say things like this where like it's all about the transcendence of concepts or like entering a state of annihilation or fauna and mm -hmm. so then people will and omar khayyam said thing you know when they talk about wine or whatever you know wine being a metaphor for like the intoxication of the divine you know not mm -hmm. to say that sufis haven't like consumed wine like because this is an incredibly diverse phenomena and doing yeah. things like shah does where he says like the sufis were like this you know is it's like just not scholarly. it's like saying the romans were like this yeah. or like yeah. you know it's like you know, so like the egyptians like yeah. talking about it the 1500 year period but 
Yeah, but it's funny because Omar Khayyam, I remember, I actually remember getting, like, in some stupid fight with somebody on Twitter who was, like, insisting that Omar Khayyam was, like, an atheistic satirist, you know, for this type of thing. But anyway, so, like, uh, yeah, that's, like, uh, anyway, so Omar Khayyam, that's what they mean when they say he was, like, uh, had a Bacchus sort of thing where he would mention wine or whatever, use it in this I sort see. of way. But anyway, so uh, he was doing this translation of the of this Rubaiyat, which is like kind of one of his most famous work and it's pretty well known you know but in those sort of circles people appreciate it for that and for other reasons he got in touch with uh idris's brother omar ali shah um and he gave him like this sort of text that was uh allegedly a manuscript um that belonged to the shah family Mm -hmm. um and, and it was allegedly you know of uncontradictable authority and uh Chayam sufi connections form part of the oral tradition which has been handed down in my family for the last nine centuries uh anyway so okay. like there you go okay. and it, like uh so then he just started saying graves graves you know like uh, yes he go all the way back to the um prophet muhammad but then eventually you know academics got their hold on this and uh you know these are some people like uh, jce bowen said omar ali shah has no more than a nodding acquaintance with the persian language and knows very little about persian literature and basically said that his crib was based on an english compilation of originals used by robert fitzgerald which who had already translated this and it was actually the most popular translation already so wow, wow. so he's like, just lifting yes or just um, and also mistranslating a lot of um a lot of these texts to to the point where like they're basically going to be misinterpreted from their original reading and he did that yeah. in a number of books i'm seeing just in uh in the uh, lawrence l sutton article um where he calls uh shaw's translations from persian frequently unreliable um there's a line from omar Khayyam, uh which should read what they have said is only wind a cupbearer but Shaw writes it, what they have only said is in our hands, O cupbearer. Uh, because he has misread Badast, it is wind as Badast with the hand. <laughs> um, so that seems like a very, like, you know, kind of uh, basic misinterpretation that would happen from not yes. being fluent in the language and not caring. Yeah. Um, another... Or not even, like, thinking about it. Like, what does that mean? Um, yeah yeah what it sounds like what they have only said is in our hands oh cupbearer it's like yeah yeah that's wow it's so mysterious uh, <laughs> you know what i mean like, um uh, yeah and it shows like an unfamiliarity uh it does show an unfamiliarity with like the literature because a lot of these things are kind of like i don't want to say cliches but formulae that like occur a lot so like uh -huh. if you're kind of familiar with them you can sort of but yeah and what's another really funny thing about this is that like they actually in their introduction like attacked the translation that they stole basically hmm. and said like you know that he, they made it seem like you know uh, they improved upon it well basically well, yeah, like uh you know he they actually were kind of closer i think to the truth in a way because fitzgerald kind of represented him in the sort of atheistic way of being like uh -huh. a drunkard you know because he talks about wine or whatever and he yeah. is an, uh you know an unbeliever or whatever which like, but they were sort of showing that he was, you know, more uh, spiritual or whatever, which I think actually was correct. But ultimately, like, they ended up just insulting a translation that they were just stealing. Um, yeah, and yeah. that, like, you know, so 
Yeah. And I mean, um, you think like it, it's bad enough when you do that in any kind of normal, you know, historical or academic context, like mistranslating things is like is bad. Um, but specifically when you're, you know, uh, translating like Sufi poetry or mystical writing that is already supposed to be somewhat opaque and yeah. open to interpretation that when you completely torque the meaning of it to be or the words in it to be something completely different and then you know you're supposed to like people go into reading these things expecting them to be somewhat ambiguous and mystical yeah. so they're just they're i don't know like what happens when you you know mess up the recipe of a sufi you know proverb or <laughs> or like a, i mean or did they think it was a riddle just like a fascinating impenetrable riddle you know riddle that yeah. idris shah could like riff on for decades and uh in fact it's just like gobbledygook yeah um yeah and just like like wrong. a historical it's, gobbledygook the, yeah but it really goes to show that like people don't check so uh -huh. like as people don't know most of the time like it really falls to and especially in his case where, uh, you know, he has all these, like, zealous defenders who will, like, you know, uh, circle the wagons around him, like, when academics uh, come to criticize him. But a lot of the time, like, yeah, people won't, like, uh, I mean, Coleman Barks, compared to, to Coleman Barks, in terms of translation, Idris Shah isn't really that bad compared to Coleman Barks, someone who, like, really has just intentionally, literally can't read Persian and mm. just tran at all. And just translates from uh, other translations and just like feels it because he has a spiritual link to, to Rumi or whatever, you know. And so yeah, what he does yeah, basically exactly. is just take out every reference to anything having to do with Islam, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah um, like, uh, and so, actually, in, in terms of the like blind following dynamic, I, I like to read a little from L.P. Uh, Elwell Sutton's uh, scathing uh, essay from 1975 called Sufism and Pseudo-Sufism, where he really kind of goes in on yeah, Peter Shaw in a hard way. Mentioned in Morris is a big <laughs> critic of, of Shaw. One of his, yes, yeah. yeah, one of his main detractors. So. He says, while there continued and continue to be genuine Sufis who understand the full implications of the Sufi way of life, as well as scholars, both Eastern and Western, who studied its writings in depth, popular Sufism tended to deteriorate into a despiritualized accumulation of ritual, superstition, and folklore, often in the hands of itinerant dervishes playing on the credulity of the simple-minded. It is unfortunate that it is precisely these decadent and negative aspects of Sufism that have gained most currency in the West, since pseudo-Sufis have scrambled on to set the, onto the bandwagon of, quote, oriental mysticism set rolling by the Zen Buddhists in the 1950s. Most of these movements, whether they claim the Far East, India, the Middle East, or Central Asia as their source, have certain things in common. They appeal to the psychological weaknesses of bewildered individuals in a puzzling world. They exploit the popular view of the East as mysterious and perhaps therefore wiser than ourselves. So Gurdjieff's seekers of the truth, we are told, penetrated during their research for esoteric knowledge into little-known parts of Persia, Baluchistan, Afghanistan, Turkestan, Tibet, the borders of India, China, Egypt, and the Indonesian archipelago. They demand wholehearted and uncritical acceptance from their adherents and discourage informed inquiry and expert assessment. Uh, so Raphael Lafort, who I think we discussed, was that a pseudonym? Yeah, that for, is Idris Shah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so as, real, as, as real effort in his book, The Teachers of Gurdjieff, 1966, assured us that he was told, quote, you can become a pupil, you can follow the path, you will be under the absolute tutelage of those 
charged with the direction of this time phase of the tradition. Question nothing. Obey all. Return to Europe, to a place where I will send you. Speak to no one as to where it is or whom you see there. Idris Shah, in The Way of the Self, 1968, quotes one Reyes uh, Tchakmaksidi, uh, I really mangled that one, um, Tchakmaksidi, um, in the following exchange. Question 14. But collecting information about Sufis and their teachings cannot but be a good enterprise leading to knowledge? Answer. This is a question of lesser understanding. Information about the activities of one body of Sufis may be harmful to the potential of another. So basically saying, don't do your own research. And finally, the pseudo-mystical movements call for veneration of the personality of a master. This last facet leads us to consideration of the movement currently run by Idris Shah, and particularly the part played in its acceptance by the development of a personality cult. Idris Shah himself, from time to time, disclaims any desire to be treated as a, quote, guru, but it is difficult on the facts to absolve him of all awareness the campaign vigorously carried on by his adherents. There is all too much evidence of a well-planned buildup beginning in the early 1960s with discreetly worded articles, singling out for special sanctity and a special role in the world an obscure Afghan clan from whom it happens, as it happens, Idris Shah is descended. There followed hints of the establishment of a center of Sufi teaching somewhere in Europe. Raphael Lafort quoted above, Idris Shah, quote, There is a conscious, efficient, and deliberate source of legitimate Sufic teaching actually in operation in the West. In the end, these different strands were brought together to identify Idris Shah, by now known as a prolific writer, as the master to whom the world must turn. Um, by way of example, on a somewhat trivial level, may I cite the International Week of the Sufi Book held in Buenos Aires in 1972, at which six out of the 29 prizes were awarded to books by Idris Shah, and another nine to books and articles about him, and six to books by his associates or published by his private press. It goes on and on. He does talk more about these, like, intellectuals that get sucked into basically, uh, worshiping him and and i think you you hear these dynamics coming out again and again in like the new age kind of movement even among people who are like quote unquote you know educated or elites and stuff yeah this is a really this is one of the funniest things uh from this article he says uh equally potent is the romantic lure of the east True, the East is less remote than it used to be, but there are still relatively inaccessible areas in Central Asia. The location of most of the exotic Oriental names that splatter the works of Idris Shah, as of Gurdjieff before him. We even learn from the dust cover of Tales of the Dervishes that he, uh, Idris Shah, has met and recorded interviews and exchanges with the hidden imam of the Muslims. <laughs> uh, which is really great. Like, uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, as he specifies, uh, that would be a scoop indeed for the hidden imam went into concealment during the 9th century AD and is to reappear only the day of judgment. <laughs> so yes, uh, that's like really quite a claim. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, you can't understate what like a ridiculous uh, notion. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah. So. He, he goes on there to say the readiness of the intellectual to abandon his critical faculties is somewhat more surprising. Is it fear of being caught out, of failing to recognize a new idea, of being left behind when the bandwagon dries off, or the belief of unquestioning obedience and utter discipline, quoting Lafort? or simply the schoolboy thrill of being initiated into a secret society, a mysterious brotherhood of near-supernatural beings. 
Whatever the cause, one cannot be struck, but be struck by the mental contortions undergone by followers of Gurdjieff, Uspensky, Idris Shah, and their attempts to reconcile what their rational faculty recognizes as nonsense with the uncritical acceptance they feel must be given to a, quote, master. And yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, that is extremely common where basically uh you know even if somebody is saying something patently kind of ridiculous like i met the hidden imam and yeah. like interviewed him um once you're invested it doesn't matter how quote-unquote intellectual or intelligent you are it's really more this is something that plays out more in the affective like emotional psychological plane of you know buying into this belief system and the need um to you know to well, it's have discovered this secret way. Yeah, it's interesting actually <laughs> to make uh, a, a parallel comes to mind, which is like you know Gurdjieff. He was kind of like a swarthy type of figure. You know, he definitely had Oriental pretensions, but ultimately he was still like Ivanovich Gurdjieff. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, and same with Uspensky. You know, they were like. Uh, a little bit Eastern, but, you know, they were definitely, like, I mean, of course, Gurdjieff was gone by that point, but, uh, you know, they, like, Idris Shah definitely saw, like, an opportunity to swoop in and take that over because he could pose as someone who was even more, you know, of the Orient. And you can really see this type of thing happening, like, in academia still because people don't know the first thing about a lot of this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, I would include myself, like, you know, if someone comes like and says like oh you know i'm a like uh non-binary indigenous like two-spirit and like this Mm -hmm. is my tradition of like you know the ojibwe or whatever like what they say like i pretty much have to take that at face value because i don't know anything about like the actual ojibwe traditions they could Mm -hmm. be just saying bullshit you know, like they could have just read a couple wikipedia articles and it might turn out as we're noticing like more and more that that person is white <laughs> you know like, like that person's like a jewish girl up. from you know like long island like or mm-hmm. whatever you know like so uh yeah exactly so like it's just like so, but that's something that like can definitely make your career in academia like you'll you might get found out as does happen to people but and like people won't necessarily know the more sort of i mean this is a different time in the mid-20th century you know the uh, yeah. the field of Islamic studies has gotten a bit better. Um, and there's people, you know, especially in terms of the like Persian, but, uh, there's still definitely people who can slip under the radar and certain things, you know, I was just seeing on Twitter, some dude who like, uh, like a white guy with dreadlocks who was like, well, I'm Indian, uh, and is a professor at like, uh, UW Madison or something, you know, and oh, he's wow. like, well, I'm Indian and it is an Indian tradition to wear dreadlocks, but he's like an African studies like professor and it's oh. obviously like all that. Yeah. It's like, uh, but so it's, yeah, yeah it's an interesting, <laughs> but like, uh, it's a, yeah, so, like, but this um, i mean when you look at his actual background too because i think that he does have a pedigree but it's not the pedigree that he presented to the public yes, is a very exactly. different one um just to quote a little paragraph here from the same article um yeah, the facts are that Idris Shah is the son of the late Iqbal Ali Shah. We covered this a little bit. A one-time unsuccessful medical stu- a student at Edinburgh University who turned world traveler and publicist uh, to a number of Asian countries and personalities. The family is descended from a clan of Musavi Sayyids in the small Afghan resort of Pagman, 50 miles west of Kabul. 
this is what's important. Idris Shah's great-great-grandfather was, in 1840, awarded the title of John Fishan Khan for supporting the British-sponsored puppet Shah Shuja, and in 1841 expelled from Afghanistan for the same activity when the British army was disastrously defeated at the end of the First Afghan War. The Indian government compensated him with a modest estate at Sardana, near Delhi, where relatives of the family still live. So, basically, um, this guy was, like, comes from a long line of British imperial collaborators who were actually yes. chased out of their own country for collaborating with the British and uh, don't seem to have any... I think the other uh, thing we read earlier, uh, the Moore thing, said that uh, John Fishon Khan was basically, like, what was that called? Like, the Zealot was, like, the name of his yeah. uh, yes. designation. Um, and he and that was, was like, the guy who apparently had the manuscript of, you know, the Omar Khayyam poems that, you know, mm, were, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, but it's, it's not it clear that he dumb. comes from any kind of noble lineage prior to his great-great-grandfather, and his great-great-grandfather came to prominence by collaborating with, like, the British imperialists, so who then, you know, set them up, basically. It's just like any, like, anti-Castro Cuban who has, like, a, a McMansion in Florida, like they come here with their, you know, ill gotten yeah, so gains and the government the time, sets them yeah. up with like a nice life and so they got to live in the Raj and uh yeah, like basically just live it up and be rich people, kind of, relatively speaking. And um and also uh, there was there is some evidence, I think, that you stumbled upon that uh Idris Shah's father was an agent of British intelligence. Yeah, well, it certainly seems like he kind of was. I mean, he at the very least was like a big diplomat who traveled mm -hmm. around under the auspices of like the UK government. I mean, that was like kind of part of the reason why he was on that halal meat mission and things like that, that ended up being kind of a scandal. But he yeah. wrote like a lot of books, like controlling minds of it's funny. It's a funny title. What he meant was the minds that control Asia, like profiles uh -huh. of, you know, people like uh, oh, yeah. Like, or whatever, but it's very funny that it's called Controlling Minds of Asia. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, like, uh, yeah, but he, so it seemed like basically Idris Shah kind of inherited his role in a way of, like, explaining the mysterious Orient to, uh, you know, this type of community of, like, uh, British elites and government officials and uh, intel agents. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it all kind of syncs up in a way, like sort of, you know, co even colonizing this obscure mystical tradition and yeah. retrofitting it for use in the UK and like in the West to, I mean, it's like today, you know, like, uh, you know, eating, you know, psilocybin went from this like kind of shamanic ritual stuff or pagan rituals that were discovered you know, earlier in the 20th century, and now, like, Silicon Valley tech bros, like, microdose three times a week to, like, boost their creativity yeah. and productivity by 24%. And it's, like, you just see the instrumentalization and, um, and the commodification and instrumentalization of, like, spiritual technologies to enhance the yeah. material business world and, um... And yeah. buttress our like modern capitalist civilization, and especially at that time when like people were like, for instance, there's so much reference. And again, like 
he'll say stuff like, oh, you know, people just see, like, what they want to see in this material, like, in this information, you know, if they, like, are interested in extraterrestrials, they'll find stuff to do with that or whatever, like, you know, if flying saucers turn out to be real, uh, people will find evidence of that in some material, you know, but he definitely, like, dresses it up and presents it in a way that's meant to appeal to an audience that is interested in, like we said before, the strategic value of like the uh, psychology basically yeah. and like the human the human mind one of my favorite things that he does is uh there's a sufi concept of tajali which is like kind of like self-disclosure of god or like illumination and mm -hmm. uh he chooses to translate this term as irradiation which is like <laughs> you know a really like uh interesting uh almost like a sinister it. reversal of uh like, yeah radiating yeah, you could, like, uh, you know, call it that, but it's, uh, like, you know, that's not a Ill totally illegitimate translation, but yeah. it's also, like, definitely, like, a deliberate choice in terms of what it evokes in English, where it seems yeah. like it's this kind of energy, like what Marie Curie, like, discovered, uh -huh. you know, yeah. that then we can now use, like, uh, he says, Tajali influences and affects everyone, though it is perceptible only to a few. A person, for instance, may find that he is, quote, in luck, or, quote, does just the right thing, or that he cannot put a foot wrong. This may be a consequence of accidental Tajali. Not realizing the source of the phenomenon, the individual will attribute the cause to something else, say to luck. He feels well because someone has said something complimentary to him, or because he has had a rise in pay. These are the reasons, the rationalizations. This, too, is the wasteful form of Tajali, because its operation has a content which far exceeds in importance and even usefulness the secondary advantages which warm the heart of the unconscious recipient. Being unconscious of the mechanism, however, he cannot proceed further in acquiring the advantages of Tajali. So, like, hmm. that is, like, extremely, like, instrumental like uh description of this and that's like all this stuff like uh the he even says that people who don't have a true mystical state can still access like supernormal faculties there's so yeah, much it's very about ESP. Having, like, it ESP almost abilities. sounds like it almost sounds like accessing you know the a causal realm a little bit uh total well it's like the aspect of this that has to do with like esp or a, like you know having these sort of supernormal powers like again like usually in sufi literature again like sort of generalizing like obviously there is uh, there's definitely some emphasis on like miracles and that type of thing but these are for one you can't like you know use this in an x-man type way these are things that like come yeah. from god and also like they are themselves veils like they are like you know these miracles are in a way superficial you know mm -hmm. but um yeah he talks about like um the false Tajali experienced by those who do not carry their development along in a balanced way may give rise to a conviction that it is a true mystical state, especially when it is found that supernormal faculties seem to be activated in this condition. So he's talking about how, like, even if, you know, you have, like, even halfway along the way to the real mystical state, uh, you can have superpowers. So wow. that to me, as like, you know, MK Ultra, like, scientist reading uh -huh. this, I'm like, okay, tell me more. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Like, well, tell me about the like, you know, I don't even need to like be a Sufi or whatever. I don't even need to like have a mystical state, and I can already. Uh, and he says like, you know, firstly, the teacher will once self-identify, uh, once identify the counterfeit state. Secondly, as a matter of self-investigation, it can always be discerned that the gains of perception are of no exact value. There may be, for instance, an axis of intuition. One may know something about someone. Thought reading is an example, but the actual function, the value of the ability to read thought, is nil. 
Uh, <laughs> mm, doesn't <laughs> um, seem like it would know. be nil. No, it doesn't. But like, uh, yeah. So, um, like, uh, yeah, like, uh, interesting. So, anyway, um, but you know, like. It's, uh, he'll, like, uh, pay lip service to, like, some of the things that I mentioned, like, you know, that this is, like, a, uh, part of the chain, but there is still, like, so much emphasis on, like, this idea of being able to read thoughts or use ESP, like, in, uh, his worker to manifest powers, like, uh, he does, even, does something even about, like, uh, well, there's, like, you know, uh, there's one thing. He mentions Al-Ghazali and Ibn Arabi in, like, uh, two sort of superpower-related ways. Um, you know, uh, Ibn Arabi, he quotes saying, I don't even know if this is a real thing, but he says, like, the angels are the powers hidden in the faculties and organs of man. It is the uh, Sufi's yeah. objective to activate these organs. So It, it almost like, sounds you know, kind of yeah. like prosperity mysticism. <laughs> in a, like, well, or human it, potential movement, ultimately, spirituality. It has, just, it has enough of a patine of mysticism and, like, you know, enough of a patine of, like, uh, like knowledge and, like, some of, like, information, like, drawn from this real tradition to... But there's the stuff that continually, like, pops up. And I think that's why, like, people have had the like the objections that have been raised like uh have rightly been raised um mm -hmm. you know like uh he also writes of uh al Ghazali. he says uh man uh Ghazali points out is capable of existing on several different planes um and uh you know he says like beyond uh the planes of walking on land riding a chariot there's a phase that one might say that a man can fly by his own power through the air you know um wow. and yeah. Uh, yeah yeah you can says, be a superhero like, too there are individuals who reach a certain height of power uh who can rule their own bodies and those of others as well should they desire an invalid to recover he does so they can make someone come to them by an effort of will you know so like throwing all these things in like and in actual sufi literature like if anything like you know, there's sort of a denial of this stuff or, like, a rejection or a marginalization of it in a lot of, like, really mainstream super literature. Obviously, like, the idea of karma or miracles is a big, important part of yeah. authenticating saints and that stuff, like, as well. Like, again, trying to avoid any kind of generalization, but this is, like, very different because the sexiness of it comes from, even though he might, like, then do it's a dodge or something. It's, like, the worldly it allure. From, yeah, the, okay. a lot of it comes from, like, the, the systematization of, like, the types of powers that yeah. you can have, you know, like, yeah. uh, and the activation of, you know, these types of organs or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, that you can uh, develop. At the risk of appearing to be a primitive oriental, I have to tell you that we do have in the Sufi persuasion specific exercises which are carried out by means of concentration on ten elements, five of which are relative and five of which are absolute, which are held to exist in the human body, like the chakras of yoga. The only difference between us and the yogis in that way, I think one of the main ones is that we do not say they actually exist. We say that if you adopt a certain sort of posture, the posture of concentrating on your solar plexus, this will cause your mind to work in a certain way. Whereas the yogis insist on the invisible channels which are physiologically present, but your microscopes aren't good enough, so you pay your money and take a pick on that. Now, so we have these five centers of spiritual perception, and they correspond to five different ranges of experience, and they are conceived of as if they had physical locations in the human body. And the 
activation of these organs of spiritual perception, as they are called, is one of the Sufi specialties. Now, these five subtle locations don't exist literally, and they are located in the body in order to get you to move in a certain way. When you are working on or seeking to transform this terrible commanding self, the secondary self, you have to concentrate on the lowest level of clearing one's capacities. You concentrate on your navel, that is where the secondary self is located. I want to read one more thing from Lawrence L. Sutton's essay before we move on from it that I think kind of captures up like what we everything we've just been talking about. Um, so, quote, the uneasy feeling that something vital is missing crystallizes suddenly into the realization that this is Sufism, if it deserves that name, without Islam, Sufism without religion, Sufism centered not on God, but on man. Page after page of Idris Shah's writings do not even mention the name of God, the word love, or the concept of unity with God through love. He is far more concerned with prescriptions for self-improvement, directions for the achievement of personal happiness, guidelines for a worldly elite. Robert Graves has it neatly summed up, quote, To be in the world, but not of it. Free from ambition, greed, intellectual pride, blind obedience to custom, or awe of persons higher in rank. That is the Sufi's ideal. These may be admirable sentiments, but a brief glance at the quotations from Sufi poets given earlier in this article will show that Graves' ideal has nothing whatever to do with genuine Sufism. In this, of course, Idris Shah is merely being practical. The Western intellectual of today is above all a humanist, and is usually incapable of swallowing the idea of a transcendent god more omnipotent than himself. He delights in being mystified, but the, mystify, but the mystifier must not go too far. He must remain firmly anchored within the world. The void left by the departure of religion must be filled, and how better than by the modern faith of science, or pseudoscience. So we learn that one Dr. Robert Ornstein of Stanford University has, under the influence of Idris Shah, quote, matched electronically monitored brain functions with Sufi patterns of thought. <laughs> In the same vein, though on a somewhat less frivolous level, uh, are the writings of American-trained Iranian psychologist Reza Aresteh, now based in Washington. He has a contribution in Sufi studies under the intimidating title, Psychology of the Sufi Way to Individuation, a jargon-packed psychoanalytical interpretation of the Sufi phenomenon that mentions the name of God eight times in the course of 10,000 words, and then only in this kind of context, quote, to become like God represents a beautiful creation more than submission to the authoritarian image of God. It means becoming love and loving to save, not loving God to be saved. Among Aresteh's other works is Rumi the Persian, the Sufi, originally published under a slightly different title, in Tehran in 1965. Aresteh is clearly influenced by Eric Fromm's humanistic psychoanalysis. There are frequent references to him throughout the book, including a 10-page tribute, a courtesy gracefully acknowledged by a three-page preface from the pen of Dr. Fromm. According to the latter, the mysticism of Rumi deals not with, quote, theology and intellectual speculations about God, but with the inner experience of oneness of the world. This mysticism is the last consequence of rationalism. The author follows this line, reinterpreting Persian culture in terms of psychoanalysis and analyzing Rumi's personality on the basis of psychotherapy. The conclusion of all of this is that Rumi was, quote, one of the greatest humanists. 
What the Sufi has to do, according to Ariste, is to listen to his, quote, humanistic conscience, and in this way to part with his, quote, phenomenal self in order to achieve the state of, quote, cosmic existence or transcendental, transcendental consciousness. The real self can be thought of as the crown of the unconscious, which is potentially conscious existence, the Sufi's goal. Um... Uh, to, to do R.S. De credit, his writing is considerably more profound, far better thought out than that of the master to whom he now offers his allegiance. But in the end, his insistence on rationalizing the religious phenomenon, on eliminating the spiritual, the angelic, the divine from his account of Islamic mysticism leads him to conclusions that may be good science, but have nothing to do with Sufism. By the end of the book, God has completely disappeared, and we are left with a vague socio-political prescription. Quote, the Near East must examine the sources of social contradictions in both the East and West and resolve these basic conflicts in terms of man's ultimate destiny, that is, the development of a healthy character and the establishment of peace. It is in terms of this course that Rumi and his belated, related Oriental heritage can be of great benefit to present-day leaders. This view must be taken if the East is to develop a healthy society, which will contribute to the gradual but total well-being of the individual, that is, to facilitate the evolution of man's rebirth without molding him first to, the, to a social self, an intellectual self, or a robot. The last thing he does is like... Uh, this author says is Sufism, however, is not concerned with the betterment of the human race, but with leading it away from worldly preoccupations, with giving awareness of the world of God and the spirit, with diverting man's power to love from self-love to love of God, with guiding him in the search for reunion with the absolute source from which he sprang. Above all, in a society dominated by mechanistic science, when already people are talking about the quote man-made future, it is well to be reminded that man does not make the future and that the world of matter is only the outward and temporary symbolization of the real and immutable world of the spirit. To forget this leads to the subjection of human life to man-made laws that turn men into automata and statistics deny the worth of human personality and degrade man's spiritual role. But pseudo-Sufis have nothing to say about all this. Their teachings even encourage negativism, passive non-participation, fatalistic submission to authority. Therein lies their danger. Okay, so I um, yeah. I could probably pick a few bones at that last paragraph there, um, but I think he is getting at something that you know, uh, perhaps is a, a legitimate what the, phenomenon. That's... What are the bones that you would pick? Well, uh, I mean, uh, I'm just... Uh, I think... it. Unless I'm misreading it here, I mean, I think I, I do think that the society dominated by mechanistic science, you know, the idea of a man-made future. Um, uh, I think when he says that it is well to be reminded that man does not make the future and that the world of matter is only the outward and temporary symbolization of the real and immutable world of the spirit. I, um, I can appreciate that perspective, but I don't know if I'm ready to cast aside like every... I don't know if I'm ready to go full Hegelian, like this guy seems uh, to be hmm, maybe doing yeah. a little bit, and uh, well, saying think that, that you know man has like no role to play in their own creating their own reality. Yes, that's that man definitely... does not make the future. I mean, I think man at least co-creates the future with, you know, um, but does not make it. I guess as Mark said, you know, man, you know, to crudely paraphrase like they make their own history but well, not under their own term like not as they see fit you know not not in total kind of um autonomous isolation from their environment 
and broader conditions in the world and even the realm of ideas and even maybe murkier more subliminal things than that but so i don't know is that what you got from that paragraph yeah well i definitely would i think that one can like really disagree and it's like kind of like nuance but i think that that's definitely a sufi idea like uh there definitely is that kind of well but it's also complicated because there's a uh like there's aspects of the sort of quote-unquote spiritual i don't think like spiritual is really a category in uh sufism per se but there definitely is like an interior and exterior and there's like a certain prioritization of one over the other i think that's like a bit more accurate but yeah i see what you're saying like uh, i, I, I honestly and it might like, if i'm being perfectly if i'm gonna do some instant self-crit right here or whatever just like you know be honest with myself uh especially the last line sounded a little bit like a not so covert dig at like godless materialistic communism and okay. that you know hmm, we don't want to end up like the soviet union where the life is subjected to man-made laws that turn men into automata and statistics and deny the worth of human personality it sounds maybe like he's he's subtweeting a little bit and maybe but if he's if he's solely talking about kind of western bourgeois like technocratic capitalist society i i do agree with him on that front at, at the very yeah. least um, um and the kind of and even yeah. the overly kind of materialistic and mechanistic views of um of history and uh, and things like that um yeah i think that yeah i think that like uh he's trying to like give it like a condensed way but a lot of the time like yeah i think that there's probably more nuance to it than like he's reflecting but i think that uh what he's saying is closer to i think it's a it's a fair corrective to uh shah's view but yeah as you said like mm -hmm. uh, yeah i mean i think he's trying to i think he's trying to acknowledge too. that the value of maybe a kind of uh, a perspective that is rooted in kind of sufi values but saying but you know he's sort of he's giving it um he's giving it a, a bit of its due uh, but then you know saying that like but these sufi these pseudo sufis I have nothing to say about all of it. Like, this is not... It would be one thing if, if, if that's kind of the way they were, I don't know, bringing these kind of ideas into the world, but um, but instead they encourage negativism, passive non-participation, and fatalistic submission to authority. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I'd say that's, like, probably about right. I think that it's a little bit complicated vis-a-vis -vis this quote. I think it's a little bit complicated but i mean i guess that spirituality is like an idea in sufism like uh ruhaniyat uh is like kind of a concept or like it is a concept but it's not really doesn't map fully on the spirituality as we know it and the, even though there is a dichotomy between interior and exterior where the interior usually has priority i would say that broadly speaking again like very much generalizing uh like in general like in order to access the interior or like the quote-unquote spiritual it's through like the exterior or the material is the only way to do so like mm. we can only access god through the world in a way so yeah. i think there's like a little bit of nuance there but i do think sure. the guy made fair but anyway so before we get into like uh his novel his sort of fabulistic uh novel <laughs> about his adventures in afghanistan like during mm -hmm. the uh the afghan soviet war mm -hmm. um like, uh, I think it might be interesting to read uh, just this interesting little part from uh, the Sufis kind of through and alongside 
um, something that he uh, had kind of uh, written under a pseudonym, uh, his pseudonym of Archon Daraul, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't even want to, I don't know what that might be an anagram for, but uh, (laughs) yeah, we'll see. So anyway, in the Sufis, he's talking about this weird situation where he's talking about the abjad sort of he's talking about like abjad numerology which is where like arabic numbers are assigned to certain like numeric uh, sorry arabic letters are assigned to certain numeric values Mm -hmm. um he basically is saying that like every sufi knows this system and it can be used to decode words and like definitely that is used by like some sufis are in sufi context but there are different like systems so there isn't like one true thing that is like used but anyway Mm -hmm. Uh, then he goes on to talk about a Sufi circle called the Fehmia, or the Perceivers, which is not, I don't think, a real thing. Uh, Fem is, like, a, a concept of, like, understanding, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's actually, like, a, a group. But anyway, so then he says that if you change the ha, like, the soft ha, like the one in jihad, mm-hmm. to, like, a hard one, like in Muhammad, then mm-hmm. it becomes Fehm, which is, like, coal man, or charcoal dealer. So mm-hmm. on that basis, he's saying that this is actually, like, uh, this made-up group. Uh, like, I don't know, maybe there is some, like, s- obscure Sufi group that ha- had this name. I mean, in a way, like, all Sufis are families, but, like, and that they understand. But, like, uh, he's saying there's some weird link between this and the group of the, the Carbonari, the sort of secret society, um, which is, like, a, a group that, I guess, exists in Europe, um, uh, th- according to him, their myth is, uh, their foundation myth is that King Francis I of France, uh, who died in 1547, was out hunting straight into Scotland, which bordered his territories. He was found and betra- befriended by charcoal burners. These are, were not ordinary people, but a band of mystics who had been attracted by an ancient sage. Francis joined them and became their protector. If we realize that the country which bordered France was Spain, not Scotland, and Sufiized Spain at that... Uh, so he's talking about, you know, like Islamic Spain. Uh, he's realizing that Scotland is a code name for Spain. And that really, like, there's this sort of mystic order of uh, Coleman was really Sufis. And uh, so, yeah, or something like that. And uh, so then he's saying that these sort of people who he, he writes, uh, the Sufi Coleman, again, a made up group. Uh, could give baraka to brides in country districts. In England, even today, brides often call them the chimney sweep with a sooty face to give them a kiss just after the wedding ceremony. Uh, and then he mentions uh, El Aswad, the black man, is one of the most important and mysterious figures in both North European and Spanish Arab accounts of witchcraft rites in many parts of Europe. So if you've read any uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne in high school, Mm-hmm. You'll instantly pick up on uh, the black man uh, and uh, notice that there's something that maybe isn't like being fully disclosed there. I don't know if you remember that book, but the black man the or if you... Letter. yeah, or uh, you know any. Uh, I mean, it's a popular name. I mean, it predates this, but the black man is like kind of like uh, old scratch. It's a conventional name for the devil. Yeah, um, it's the devil. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Uh, and if you look into one of uh his book uh secret societies 
um, mm-hmm. which are history of secret societies written under his pen name, which uh, he uh, talks about various groups, including uh, Sufis. He has a chapter on Sufis, which is, is very interesting because he talks, uh, this is a good quote where he says, there are many traditional centers of Sufism and all the major orders trace their spiritual pedigree through dozens of teachers. Heredity is also acknowledged in the transmission of lore. The Musa Kazim family, who have ruled Pagman and Afghanistan uh, for seven centuries, are directly descended from Muhammad and are the traditional heads of the Naqshbandi order. So he's basically talking about his own family. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are also said by some to perce- preserve a special training system, which is granted only to a very few initiates. It is by means mm. of the system that they have been able to produce an apparently endless succession of princes, military leaders, savants, and successful men in many walks of life. It is from this family by tradition that the office of Caliph of all Islam is to be filled. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wow. anyway, like, that's just one interesting note about this. But he has a subsequent chapter in the same book where mm-hmm. he talks about uh, the secrets of the witches. Oh, um, okay. And, uh, yeah, he says... Um, the earliest mentions of the witches' Sabbaths, which are also known as synagogues, come in the 11th century and seem to show the assimilation of the Diana cult with another, which involves the worship of a black man. Then we have mention of brewing potions, rubbing on ointments, meetings with spells at crossroads, renouncing Christianity and the use of pierced wax image in a death spell. So, during this very same period, a strange cult had arisen in Morocco, crossed the straits into Andalusia, and was actively, if secretly, followed in centers of Arab civilization with cosmopolitan populations. The latter consisted of Arabized Jews, Christian scholars, and wandering ascetics who traveled from one country to another in search of knowledge. The cult was called by the Arab authorities, who tried to put it down, the double-horned, and seemed to be connected with moon worship. It certainly was associated with magic, and its similarities to what were later reported as the witch practices are very close. So there sort of seems to be a conflation here. Okay. The devotees of this cult met on Thursday nights, were imitated by having a wound inflicted somewhere on the body, which left a small scar. Sorry, were initiated uh, by having this wound. Believed they could raise magical power by dancing in or around a circle. Some of them claim that they at times carried out religious services, which involved the saying of Muslim prayers backwards, invoking El Aswad, the black man, to help them. They served their priests, whom they saw only rarely, says the historian Ibn Jafar, after taking an oath of fealty of body and soul. They were drawn from all sections of the community, were of both sexes. So, anyway, you can see there's a sort of a conflation happening here where there's this sort of Sufi group, but in this other one, they're basically devil-worshipping He's a little, like, nudge-nudge-wink-wink that, like, hmm, I wonder if this group is still around today. Uh, yes and, and so he's kind this... of yeah melding the traditions of like european witchcraft and sufi mysticism into it, it kind yeah. of sounds like he's implying or have a common source basically and yeah he says even the Wittershins movement of the circuit of the place where the ritual like a witch ritual is held you know um mm-hmm. they sort of dance counterclockwise the classic Wittershins thing mm-hmm. uh can be better understood than by the contention that it was evil because it reversed the more normal way of going around a sanctified place in the reverse direction. The most ancient ritual practice with a connected history known to us include, in the Mecca pilgrimage, counterclockwise religious circuits before the votee passes between the two pillars of the Mecca running place. So he's kind of, yeah, there's definitely like a combination that is having, which makes sense in terms of his own life uh, trajectory. And it's very, very similar in a way, to the insight roles type of thing, where there's yeah, like interest yeah. and the whole different personas and that type of thing. So yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> but bef- as a good segue to the sort of uh, his travels um, 
and uh you know on his need to know basis or whatever mm -hmm. um he's talking about again this abjad system and right after he mentions the black man he says millions of words could be written on concealed sufic meanings sometimes they are contained in phrases some of them not very meaningful in their apparent sense but repeated with a fervor which has baffled the uninitiated here is one such slogan seek knowledge even as far as china the phrase which is on all sufi lips it's like a hadith, like, you know, this is a yeah. spraying of the prophet. Anyway, but uh, has more than a literal or even figurative sense. The meaning is unlocked by analyzing the use of the word China, interpreted through the secret language. China is a code word for mind concentration, one of the Sufi practices, an essential prerequisite of Sufic development. The phrase is important partly because it provides an example of the coincidence and interpretation possible in either the Arabic or Persian language. Neither has any real connection with the other. I just want to, like, note again that, like, conflating the soft ha and like like he probably doesn't know anything about these languages like really mm -hmm. because no arab would ever like think that it was okay to just say like oh well they're both h in english like if you don't use diacritics so like this, that's not how anyway uh -huh. whatever the yeah. fact that the word for china in both though spelled and pronounced differently decodes to substantially the same concept invests this phrase with a special significance for the sufi this is the method of decoding. China, in Arabic, uh, sin, letters sad, ya, noon, uh, equivalent numbers, 90, 10, 50, total these letters yield the number 150, splitting by hundreds, tens, and units, 100 plus 50, retranslated to numbers, so this is, like, really, you know... Uh, wow, like, he's really... Like, yeah, he's got, like, a lot of, like, uh, like uh, uh, SK Bain type, like, numerology. <laughs> but anyway, like, uh, so, but this is an interesting part. So then he does a numerology for Persian. He says in Persian, uh, chin, the letters che, ya, noon, uh, equivalent numbers 3, 10, 50, blah, blah. Again, there's like so many systems like you can make it. But anyway, reverse the order of the letters, a permissible change, one of the very few allowed by the rules. Uh, and we have the word js. Uh, the word is pronounced jas. This means to inquire after a thing, to scrutinize hidden things, to ascertain news. This is the root of the word for espionage. And hence the <laughs> Sufi is called the spy of the heart wow the spy yes. of the heart yes that is quite of all the labels uh that he's been given that almost yeah like the best one <laughs> yeah um and that is actually that that is a really good segue into yeah. uh his eventual activities a little later on in his life in the 1980s when i guess uh he, in the context of the Soviet Union's uh, military activities in Afghanistan um, and the Soviet-Afghan war, uh, Idris Shah takes it upon himself to not only write about it, but like go there and embed with Mujahideen fighters. So I believe he went in 1986. So pretty, pretty deep into the war probably at a time of i want to say probably at a time of ascendancy because the mujahideen were getting an absolutely massive amount of assistance both in weapons and uh, training and stuff from the cia from the pakistani isi from the saudis etc and um he he went and he kicked it with these brave mujahideen fighters for a while i think his daughter accompanied him on at least one of the trips and he managed to get in and out. And then he writes this novel, Kara Kush, which is a very, its whole vibe is like very Rudyard Kipling, 
swashbuckling adventure narrative kind of in the way of his maybe his collections of sufi parables Mm -hmm. it it has this like daring do uh almost and, and somewhat mythical thing but also I, I read some of it, and I'm going to read some excerpts from it because it's it's kind of mind-blowing, but also kind of is structured and feels like a Tom Clancy novel. Yeah. And actually, I read on, I think, the Wikipedia article about this book uh, pretty hilariously that, you know, it was mostly praised big eye roll by, like, Western, you know, literary critics who thought that it was, you know, an inspiring and brave thing and a, a call to arms and all this stuff. But there was, I think, one British reviewer who said that they found um, Idris Shah's, like, fascination with meticulously describing, like, military weapons to be a little distracting, <laughs> which is, like, literally the number one problem with tom clancy's i mean there's a lot of problems with tom clancy but like if there's one thing that tom clancy is notorious for it's like you know like like jet a jack racer like pulled out his like six hour p226 <laughs> with like optical laser sight and like yeah. just getting really fetishistic about the, the ordinance that's being used and stuff like that yeah, I actually read that like after nine eleven, like you know, and you know, sort of in the in the beginning of the the Afghan war, of uh, the, the United States, the recent one, the one that's still ongoing. The oh my god, I just realized they translated uh, Aflaki's Monakov, which is like so embarrassing. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, like apparently uh, after nine eleven and the build up to that war, um, he like uh, like his books were disseminated a lot uh you know as part of like packages for people like soldiers and diplomats to educate them on like afghan culture and things like that so wow for american soldiers yeah wow okay yeah that is um that is not surprising but uh but unfortunate um because uh i i didn't get a chance to read the whole thing and and honestly it's it's like a hokey narrative but it i think i told you when i first like flipped through it that you know it it makes it basically makes like rambo 3 look like soviet agitprop by comparison like just how wackily like anti-communist and like pro mujahideen it is and just but like particularly from the perspective of a like bougie western cultural celebrity that is in a very orientalist way like romanticizing like the these brave mythical like mountain warriors and the godless machine of the soviets and like their evil socialist ideology and etc etc and the plot of this i believe focuses on a mythical or not a mythical a real person i guess a member of the afghan military who's like a is is he a member i think he's a defector from the afghan military who has uh gone off back to his ancestral home to be like a, a resistance warrior basically and he's referred to mostly by his you know his, his sort of gnom de guerre is the eagle and so like he's referred to as like the eagle like sat down and blah blah blah. that's another thing in the secret societies book the whole thing of like the eagle if you look at like the insignia that he shows as like a sufi symbol of like the eagle or whatever it is uh i'll post this on the workflowy because i i didn't include it there yet but i will for the show notes and like the eagle is like it's a it's a nazi eagle (laughs) like it's uh yeah 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it yeah. feels. It, it, I mean, well, he gets into some very like weird waters with uh, his um, his characterizations of like the pro-Soviet Afghans and then the Russians themselves. Should I should I go ahead and read a couple like choice passages from this yeah, just to give a yeah. general idea? I think you of... read it more than I did. Uh, yeah, I assume. Yeah, well, I, to be honest, yeah, like I said, I, I didn't read the whole thing, but what I did do was Control F CIA in it because I wanted <laughs> to know like to what extent the CIA kind of pops up, and of course, I didn't I didn't put it in quote marks, so I also got like every mention of the word socialist you know with the cia in there so i was able to stumble upon some pretty uh, amazing passages and um so i guess i'll start here where i think this is a scene early on where um where the eagle has been captured i think the eagle's been captured of course he like gets away uh because he's like fucking rambo um but like while there's a great you know evil russian interrogating him scene but the eagle flips it on its head so anyways uh you speak dari he asked the eagle yes as as elikov was securing his hands and feet the major let out a long breath and then started to pant i was afraid that your forces would mortar us those exposed stacks of shells, mines, ammunition, right in the center of a compound. He gave the impression of a man more concerned with practical matters than military etiquette, or even personal indignity. At a glance, he had accepted the eagle on the same terms. Frankly, I was scared. Scared, Adam said. We were told you were socialist heroes. Don't say it's all propaganda. Maybe you should use smelling salts before you go out and kill any more women and children. Sons of Mother Russia. When you people decay, you'll not even make decent manure. You became heroes in the past by fighting amateurs of frozen armies, that's all. The Major was shaking badly now. He nodded his head slowly and then fast, but said nothing. Zolikov dumped the Major out of the chair he was sitting on with exaggerated glee. You'll never get away, Commander. The Russian colonel looked at the eagle with protruding eyes, realizing, even as he spoke, the implication of what he had said. If the eagle and his men did not escape, he was a dead man himself. That's what the villains always say. Sorry, that's what the villains always say in Hollywood movies, Colonel. But you ought to know the hero always gets away. But of course, you are not allowed to see capitalist films. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, I, I forget like who Adam is. If it's like one of his, uh, like you know, comrades or something, or uh, why if the eagle and his men did not escape, he was a dead man himself. He he's really obsessed with kind of like the Soviets are so barbaric that they just kill their own people like constantly um his his characterization of the of like the the sort of the soviet military and russians in general is uh something that probably like your modern day russia gator would really lap up as um as just feeling right um let's see uh here he goes on to describe a little bit of um of the state of the socialist army to the afghans south of the hindu kush anything connected with the ussr was a mystery in spite of their shared border to the north, the Soviet army was even more of an unknown quantity. The more they learned, the more optimistic the guerrillas became. Socialism was not producing the desired effect. Either the Russians were poor material to begin with, or the regime had well and truly knocked the stuffing out of its captive people. Food for the ordinary Soviet troops and NCOs was very poor. Porridge, noodles, bread, potatoes, and a little fish from the basis of an unvarying cycle of menus. Sometimes, the Russians said, they got meat, but not very often. 
In the cavern, the Russian soldiers sampled the officers' rations and wolfed the superior food with delight, complaining only that there was no vodka, which seemed to obsess them. They explained that they had made an illegal brew called Samahonka, but they didn't really like it, and they begged for tobacco or cigarettes. The, parts, the partisans saw that the unbalanced diet had caused many health problems. Lack of vitamins seemed to be at the root of the ulcers, boils, and night blindness so common among the men. They were grateful when they were given powdered milk, which they said was sometimes to be had in barracks at home in Russia, but could not be found in Afghanistan. When the Eagle had asked them whether their poor diet was due to transport difficulties, they said that it was, on the whole, better than they got at home. Yeah, so he seems to be really obsessed with the poor diet of the Soviet soldiers and how barbarically, like, they're all basically starving. Um, just to, to clarify a little historical fact check here, um, actually, the average caloric intake of the average Soviet citizen in the early 1980s was actually above that of the United States and only plummeted after 1991. So uh, check your shit, um, Idris Shah. Anyways, um, but he, he, he kind of goes, like, he goes even, like, further than that. Um, one gunner claimed that the infrared night sighting equipment was not in use because vitamin deficiencies in food had so limited the night vision of ordinary soldiers that the invisible light projectors and goggles were next to useless. Um, like, wait, what? Like, I mean, okay, so he's saying that, like, if they have such vitamin deficiencies that their cutting-edge night vision technology doesn't work because they can't see in the dark because they like don't get enough vitamin b or something like that um that sounds just like a wacky like uh, anyways um <laughs> this close-up view of what have been trumpeted as the greatest army on earth provided facts which took time to absorb the eagle having read and heard so much about the russians as a military power at first thought the soldiers must be lying questioning them individually however he find that their accounts bore out one another a major preoccupation was their pay. On the equivalent of $2.50 a week, a private could not buy extra food or send any money home. Everything went on boot polish, tobacco, shaving soap, and blades, and the soldiers had to pay the inflated prices of their canteens. A private's entire pay bought no more than six packets of cigarettes a month. An Afghan conscript earned five times as much. I don't think any of that is... Like, I would be surprised if all of this is true, and also he wasn't on the russian side when he went to afghanistan so like how would he know that like this just feels like wacky like it's so bad that like they eat like they, literally they eat rats in venezuela uh tier kind of shit going on here but this is one of my favorite passages that i found right after this they're all paranoid Kasim said to adam after one interrogation they believe that they're surrounded by enemies they genuinely imagine that all Afghan guerrillas are organized and accompanied by CIA agents. I'm glad the CIA isn't behind us, but in a way it's a pity they aren't, for then they get a picture of what the Russians are really like. See that one over there? He pointed to a sergeant. He's a gunner from an artillery regiment sent to the armory to check the shells. He claims that 20% of them are duds. Um, and then, like, right after that, he doesn't stop. The Russians, to the great surprise of the Mujahideen, didn't wash much. They said that this was because the army gave them little hot water and few opportunities to take a bath. The purpose of military service, they had been told, was to prepare men for war, and there would be no baths in combat conditions. The 170 prisoners had long ago become accustomed to their corporate smell, but they were an embarrassment to the guerrillas who bathed every day. Um, so actually, I think what's going on here is maybe that they captured a bunch of Russian soldiers and were interrogating them, and uh, basically they're smelly, 
they're all alcoholics they have vitamin deficiencies um well to be fair by muslim standards as i was saying i think like pretty much everyone is dirty um in terms of like you know uh, bathing like no one bathes enough like uh by muslim no one else bathes enough by muslim standards i think you know we, we do yeah. of, of washing um, yeah yeah i mean um so. they uh and i guess you know um he he describes these prisoners it is true you know um <laughs> a few people have the ritualistic washing practices of muslims um, uh yes but he's really digging in here it's like look how barbaric and dirty and like just <laughs> yeah. inhuman uh, at one point he does call them animals um i, I think he says the prisoners were now left unshackled, but were kept hobbled like horses on ropes, which allowed them to walk in their cave prisons, but not to run. It was a situation which needed some supervision, but not much. They seemed to be men without hope, and for the first two days of their captivity, they believed they were going to die. They had been told by official propaganda that the partisans tortured any Russians they captured and even skinned them alive. Many suffered from a strange, depressive melancholy, and others behaved like chronic warriors. Some were, seen to, be, were to be seen consoling others in quite a moving way. There is even, they said, a special army word, nostroimi, mood for this sadness. Um, and uh, the Russians, oh yeah, this is a great passage here. Uh, the Russians, pitiful pictures of hopelessness, huddled in groups, clutching one another, even clawing at the cave wall, fear in their eyes, a fear made more terrible than those of cornered animals by the human ability to think about the future. They were visualizing torture, dismemberment, assorted and meaningless death. Zelikov had a word for it. Demoralizatia, commandant, he whispered. The eagle was getting a first-hand demonstration, and it was to be the first of many, of the fragile esprit de corps of the Soviet army. Adam remembered reading some of the literature. Following the Second World War, all other modern armies had concentrated upon encouraging small bodies of men to form fighting groups. Such men remained together from their early training days and through active service. The result was an army made up of a large number of strongly bonded units, like the hunting groups of man throughout the ages. Okay, so like we have Western countries just like in, in, in total harmony with nature, form bonds, yeah. but the Russians had rejected this formula because, as their own documents closely studied by the CIA and other intelligence agencies showed, they feared combinations of people. Men were regularly moved from one unit to another. Units were endlessly transferred. Quote, bonding was never given a chance to happen even by accident in consequence units easily fell apart captives joined the enemy especially if the enemy had the camaraderie which the russians lacked and no doubt craved desertions and suicides were surprisingly <laughs> frequent and the rapport between men and officers was not good enough to ensure morale capable of surviving adversity to the extent which most other modern armies regarded as normal one reason for the startlingly poor quality of the Russian combat troops, even the best of them, was probably the large proportion of them who were alcohol-dependent. I mean, <laughs> I'll just pause there. Um, so, basically, like, evil Soviets are so, like, Orwellian that they basically uh, outlawed bonding amongst their military units, and thus uh... their army fell apart because they didn't have hunter groups, uh, like, the, the hunter mentality that the brave mujahideen had um yeah i i mean again like it's all like i uh don't like approve at all of like everything that uh the soviets did in central asia of course there are some exaggerations and like you know i think that uh sometimes depicted as being like more horrible than it was and like uh there's definitely uh you know, uh, comparisons that can be made with, like, 
uh especially when you compare them with like the czar like was that better mm -hmm. like things like that but like um you know still like you can definitely see like how this is like very much just like totally instrumental and like designed to like this promote, is agit prop like, basically yeah exactly this, like, isn't, this like, is like you know... like crude prop like not and, and that's why i think the tom clancy comparison really checks out not just in his obsession with weapons but in this kind of type of like thriller novel like adventure thriller novel kind of writing where it it sounds like you're i mean people reading this presumably you know might be predisposed to think of idris shah as this like amazing thinker but here he is just like it's like he's writing like he's, he's like dramatizing memos that william casey was writing him about like what he should say practically not saying literally but like his characterization of it is like so slanted and in line with like Reaganism. Yeah. Basic. I mean, it, it's like the most kind of like Rambo three red Dawn. Like he is screaming Wolverines at the top of his lungs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, yes. It's, uh, yeah, it's definitely. And it's also just like, so like fantastical and clearly like just imagine, like l largely imaginary. <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah but, you yeah. know i mean uh, and i'm sure you know there's like there's some aspect of truth and like yeah sure morale did get low near the end of a uh maybe um at a later date we maybe in our next iran contra episode uh there's a really good like french or american documentary from 1989 called afghan which is, uh, you can find it on YouTube, and it's, like, an American group that, like, actually embedded with the Soviet military, like, closer to the end of the war, like, 88 or 89, and it's, like, a very, like, melancholy thing, but it's, like, totally from the perspective of, like, you know, volunteers and, like, conscripts that are there, like, helicopter pilots and stuff, and, like, there definitely is, like, low morale and a kind of, like, fatalistic thing, but they're also there, like, we're here to, like, support the international mission, and, like, it's, you know, it sucks, but, like, it must be done because the terrorists are blah, 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 and, like, they, you're right, like, it, it's complicated, the Afghan, the Soviet-Afghan war is, like, is complicated, but I think the sole fact that like the CAA poured like billions of dollars and you know, the, the, even the characters in this book are right to think that they're going to get skinned alive and like executed because that's pretty much what happened to like all of the Soviet POWs that have that, you know, were captured. Like they were definitely treated like really in a really provocative kind of ISIS -y kind of way. Um, I can't remember. They may have um, videotaped some, you know, executions of like captured, you know, soldiers and stuff like that but you know idris shah portrays these people as just like these brave like like arthurian kind of like legendary warriors from the hills that sure. are they just you know they bathe every day they're bonded they just you know it's just like universal values that we can all get behind there's nothing problematic about basically any of the the forces and of course you know it lies outright it just i mean it slips this lie that you know, again, gaslighting the Soviets by saying, like, ooh, they're so paranoid. They genuinely imagine all Afghan guerrillas are organized by a company by CIA agents. I'm glad the CIA isn't behind us, but in a way, it's a pity they aren't. You know, it's like, that's literally, they were probably, like, 90% bankrolled by, like, the CIA and its allies. You know, he goes on to, to, to hit on them more for being alcoholics, um... You know, some beg that all the prisoners uh, craved alcohol. Some begged for drink. Others showed alarming withdrawal symptoms. Um, 
Uh, although the army drew from all ranks in society, his prisoners constantly complained that what they called very intelligent people, as well as those with good contacts, contrived to keep out of the army altogether, buying successive uh, deferments by bribery going into higher education. I mean, that's probably somewhat true. Um, oh, but this is the this is the best part that he throws down even further. And I don't know, like, haven't investigated this, but I'm a little skeptical. So he says of these prisoners of war they captured... The Russian prisoners of war never saw their socialist paradise again. When they were interrogated by the GRU, it was officially decided that their spell and captivity had produced, quote, disturbing symptoms of bourgeois thinking. According to information that reached the Eagles band through their double agents in the KHAD, the prisoners revealed taints of sympathy with the Afghan bandits. Some had stated defiantly that the rebels were not counter-revolutionaries but patriots, and one Russian private had said, They are farmers and workers like us. The Mujahideen <laughs> never learned how the Russian hostages and their dangerous sympathies were disposed of. They were probably shot. They did, however, yeah. return to their homeland in an all-too-familiar form as cinders and the little chromium-plated urns, which now grace so many homes in the Soviet Union. So, like, literally every POW who was rescued just gets shot for showing disturbing symptoms of bourgeois thinking because all of them, like, were converted by the Mujahideen and realized they are farmers just like us um pretty kind of pretty wow yeah it kind of reminds me a little bit actually of one of my favorite soviet movies which is i definitely have told you about it before it's just called uh musulman or muslim oh Um, yeah yeah i've heard yeah it's a it's about like a soviet pow uh who's a pow in afghanistan and he comes back to his like village in siberia and he's like converted to islam and like everyone in the village like is basically like constantly drunk and like they hate him because, like, they're, like, nominally orthodox, but, like, yeah. they, like, don't actually, like, practice a religion at all, and, like, they have, like, no, like, basically they have been pretty, like, totally, like, colonized by, like, capitalism pretty much and have, like, internalized a totally capitalistic mindset. Yeah. Um, and it's Is that an early late, 90s a, movie? Yeah. It's, like, a late, uh, it's a very, very late, like, Soviet movie. Um, okay, I yeah, think that it yeah. actually was before the fall of the Soviet Union, but... Maybe, you I'm saw a lot sure. of movies like that coming out, like, yeah, um, it was like Little, Little Vera, like, The Needle, um, movies like that. And, like, there was a Chernobyl movie, I think, called Decay in, like, 1991. It was, like, the first kind of movie, like, depicting it. Yeah, like, a lot of the censorship yeah. was, like, falling off. So you had these. Yeah. The, the, it's an interesting liminal period. Um, it was, yeah, it's very much about, like, the, like, infiltration of capitalism and, like, mm. how that is, be- like, you know, the worship of, like, American dollars had, like, become, like, some, like, you know, the real religion of these people's lives. That's but anyway, so, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting movie. I would recommend it, but, I, <clears throat> yeah. I um, um oh, I I wanted to I think I have like two or three more passages here. Uh, there's one that really struck out to me is like strange. I I think it involves the eagle meeting with a sinister general um named Gulam Saki. So somebody comes to his door at three in the <clears throat> three in the morning. Uh, please come with me. You have a meeting with Brigadier Saki. Saki. The butcher they called him more recently to bakai rus child of the russians ambassador sharifi exchanges bizam <clears throat> or this is ambassador sharifi in- exchanges pajamas for a dark three-piece suit gulam saki looked wide awake at 4 a.m one of those night people as the americans called them who were most alert while others slept he sat behind his desk at khad headquarters chain smoking he had the close cropped head and a mongolian face covered in pockmarks 
There was a 9mm Beretta pistol near his hand. A tiny gun, but at point-blank range like this, it could kill instantly. There's the weapon thing. Um, <laughs> the Sirdar hadn't seen Saki for 20 years, since he was president of the Anjumani Ariani Afghani, the AAA, that crazy association whose name stood for the Association of Afghan Aryans, modeled on the German SS. Its members liked to use the ancient name for the country, Ariana, and to feel that they lived in the cradle of the Nijadi Humayuni, the imperial race. Saki had even lived in Germany. On his Kabul office wall was still to be seen the brown banner of his Hitler youth unit. The captain withdrew with a smart Zindabad in Kalab. Long live the revolution. <clears throat> Saki was grinning with a false grimace which only made him look the more malevolent. Come in, nice to see you. May you never be tired, Ambassador. Have some tea, are you well? Akbar took the chair which Saki indicated and folded his neat hands on his lap. The brigadier leant forward, one arm on his desk. You will have been waiting to hear from us, respected sir, and therefore this meeting will doubtless be a relief to you. It is often so, as we have found in similar cases, and I am happy to be the instrument of your adjustment. A psychopathic killer and a lunatic. That was his reputation, and definitely a fantasist, thought Akbar. He waited. Saki picked up a pencil and weighed it in his hand. From now on, you revert to your proper rank and title of Engineer Akbar. None of these Sirdar business. We don't have princes and the like nowadays, you know. One leader, one teacher of socialist reality. That is the Afghan way. Ha, you nearly said the Aryan way, didn't you? Thought Akbar. Oh, Brigadier. No. I also, he stripped him of his princely title. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah like, but he's yeah. a Nazi. Um, Brigadier yeah, Saki well, tapped They it. are the true socialists, you know. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess Brigadier Saki taps a pencil on the desk. Engineer Akbar, a lot of people have died or have gone missing since the revolution. Many of these have been specialists and technicians. We all know that they were killed by the terrorists working for Israel and America, or bribed to desert the homeland to impoverish it. Uh, probably true. This is a well-known capitalist economic weapon. It is. Because of this, I am collecting people with technical knowledge, and you are one of them. The Kajakai Dam, their Kandahar, is, as you know, one of the largest in the world. The Americans botched the job there, or else it was them and the king's regime. We Afghans lost $120 million because of that. Anyway, we need massive electricity generation in that area. You have been chosen to install the new machinery. It is a storm effort, a crash program. He used the Russian word, Akbar noticed. Um, so yeah, that's a... Uh, I, I had never heard of the Anjumani Ariani Afghani or the Association of Afghan Aryans. It's just... Uh, it's it's, it's not only a, str- a strange thing to bring up, but then have it, the pro-Soviet Afghan intelligence officer being like a lifelong nazi i feel like idris uh, shah is throw, is showing his ass there with the kind <laughs> of you know like stalin killed more people than hitler you know you know like that kind of thing where like or you yeah. know like hitler was a socialist you know that kind right. of thing and yes. saying that like he was in the hitler the idea that like a pro-soviet general even of an allied country that had like been an enthusiastic member of the hitler youth would then like rise to the ranks of like a soviet aligned communist party like um eh, i don't think so i yeah, i would find I, them more likely to be on the side of the mujahideen where all the other nazi veterans were <laughs> you know in the 80s um, yeah i don't know i wonder if this is a real group 
uh like i mean definitely there are like in general like in all countries that like are generally aryan you know like although a lot of iranians like don't consider afghans to be aryan um and like would exclude them from from that so it's a little bit strange but i mean there is that kind of tendency definitely among like anything that's uh you know vaguely Persian. Yeah. i heard there are even like somalis who claim to be like aryan in some way or whatever like revere hitler mm -hmm. but um so i i wonder like if this is um i i'm i'm just looking glancingly at it right now and i i don't necessarily see um i don't see any like uh, any, uh you know association of aryan afghans as <laughs> like a uh as an act but i do see some kind of aryan articles that kind of discuss a hypothesis there's something called the aryan migration that i guess is a subject of some um controversy in india and afghanistan um, uh, this is interesting uh following la this is an, from an article this is what i found on google when i looked for this organization uh to see if there's any trace of it on google just uh you know right now um, an article in HuffPo came up, which says, Afghanistan-based Aryan raises objections from soldiers over name. Uh, <laughs> following last week's embarrassing controversy involving Marines displaying a flag with what appeared to be a Nazi insignia, American and Afghan soldiers have alleged that an army base near Kandahar was named Combat Outpost Aryan, a term evocative of Nazi rhetoric. Uh, mm. Near Kandahar, I wonder if the giant uh, was involved in anything. Uh, yeah. Again, um, you know, he, I think he might have done the right thing. Uh, yeah, so apparently um, the ANA uh, folks did not believe that he'd go to the Americans and our own members of the military didn't think they'd go up the chain of command. Apparently Afghans themselves were upset about the base's name. I wonder, uh, anyway, so so you'd think that, that would be the, the origin would be like that, uh, you know, the, it wouldn't be the American troops, but maybe it was. Anyway, uh, well, the naming of Combat yeah. Outpost Aryan, yeah, it's the second incident involving Nazi symbolism in the military in four days. On Friday, pictures surfaced of Marines in Afghanistan holding what appeared to be the flag of the SS. Yeah, I remember uh, that. That's a what? famous picture. That's a uh, famous picture. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've seen that. That's yeah, circulated on Twitter that, for actually, years. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was like all these operators like holding an SS flag. Um, yeah, well, and that was, after, you know, that was, yeah. that was before Adamwaffen and, and all that stuff. That was like, yeah, 2005 or something like that. Yeah, it's weird. It seems like there was some cross wires here because the... Uh, ANA members themselves seem to have been upset, according to some reports, but uh, the commanders there were like, um, Aryan refers to an ancient tribe in Afghanistan. The name is used by Afghans. So there's a news outlet with this. <laughs> well, so, it's funny you should say that because the other, the other hit that I got is that there's actually a Kandahar Aryan football club, which is like the football club in Kandahar, uh, founded, um, looks like probably in the early 2000s around the same time um and that yeah, doesn't so, seem to have any uh any controversy around it but again um, well i mean i would buy that there are people like that but yeah as you say i'm sure that everything about this is made up so like making him on the side of the bad guys is just like a matter of convenience you know it doesn't actually yeah actually like realistically it would make more sense if like it's kind know, of like you US have to be like a person yeah a sort of anti-communist like you have to be playing to like a very kind of um conditioned anti-communist western audience to be able to get away with a detail like that with yeah. like a straight face and because i think he probably gets away with a lot of this shit because he 
pins himself he presents himself as an expert on afghanistan even though he never lived there and doesn't speak any of the language i don't think he spoke any of the languages and you know basically visited in the 80s probably with some kind of assistance from like mi6 or the cia and i guess if we want to talk about like actual things that happened um i found a very interesting article about his daughter sarah shaw and uh, this is like back in 2003 from the LA Times, uh, titled "Journalist Faces Conflicting Myths in Her War-Torn Land." So she um, she basically went with Idris Shah uh, when she was like I think in her late teens, early 20s, on some of these like missions to go embed with the Mujahideen. This article, um, you know, which is very like normy but is also written in the context of like post 9-11 releases some like you know, some interesting little details about those adventures <laughs> so um it says yes yeah, sarah shaw a teenager at the time of the soviet invasion felt a burning desire to go there much to the alarm of her father who had perhaps succeeded a little too well in imbuing her with the love of her heritage in 1986 at age 21 she went as a journalist to cover the mujahideen resistance to the soviets on a later visit, Shah made an acclaimed documentary, Beneath the Veil, about the Taliban's oppression of women. She was also there in autumn 2001 during the first U.S. airstrikes. The storyteller's daughter, uh, the documentary she was releasing at the time, is the absorbing account of her hair-raising, eye-opening, sometimes heartbreaking experiences in Afghanistan and its turbulent and intrigue-filled neighbor Pakistan. But it is also a book about myths and their double-edged power to inspire and delude. Myths are the stories we tell to lend meaning to our lives, to provide us a way with understanding the world and our identity. The myth can be especially important to exiles, one thing that can be transported when much else must remain behind. But, as Shah learned in the course of her impassioned quest to know her ancestral homeland, myths can be dangerous. Shah herself was blinded by the myth of the noble Mujahideen. Most of the fighting men she met were as courageous and bold as she'd imagined. As she trudged across miles of rugged terrain in their company, being shelled and shot at, enduring altitude sickness, flea bites, frostbite, and more, Shaw felt a sense of pride, closeness, and belonging. But she also encountered errant foolishness, mild lechery, and male chauvinism, along with other forms of ignoble behavior, culminating in her discovery that some of the Mujahideen were selling to Iran the Stinger missiles that the U.S. had given them. The, it's funny that it's like, oh, the bad part is that they sold them to Iran. No, instead of just like being involved with the CIA. But anyways, um, the need for myths, Shaw feels, also clouded the thinking of the Reagan administration, which supported the Mujahideen. An American hmm, in Peshawar, whom she calls Hank, exemplifies this. Quote, just as he needed the Soviets to be evil, Hank required the Mujahideen to be noble. They had to be good, and what was more, they had to be good in a way that he could understand. He had no patience with an increasingly factionalized conflict in a country with a delicate religious and ethnic balance. He wanted to believe the Mujahideen were fighting because they detested communism, just like him. Shaw contends that the myth of the anti-communist freedom fighter blinded the United States to the danger posed by Islamic extremists. At one point, and this is the best, she recalls coming across a military installation, quote, sponsored by the CIA, funded by Saudi Arabia, and engineered by an idealistic young Islamist firebrand. His name was Osama bin Laden. The U.S., she remarks, thought that compared to the battle between communism and the free world, petty rivalries among the Mujahideen were irrelevant. Um, and, of course, after September 11th, the U.S. woke up to reality, which Shaw considers fortunate 
For most Afghans, as American military intervention helped put an end to the hated Taliban. And uh, that is just kind of great. Uh, she literally went to Al-Qaeda. Yes. Like, um, literally went to the CIA base. <laughs> Osama yeah, Biden this article, though, uh, you know, like I, what you just read, like, uh, the U.S. woke up to reality, which shock and is fortunate for most Afghans, as the American military intervention helped put an end to the hated Taliban. Great. Not true. Uh, they just endorsed Trump. Um, they definitely very much still exist. Uh, they yep, have not been still ended. Here. And also, uh, the U.S. waking up to, quote, reality of having to, like, you know, crush the Taliban or whatever was not fortunate for most Afghans, probably. Also, like, they uh, woke up to the reality that they played, like, an extremely significant role in creating in the first place. Yes. I guess, you know, they just Ronald Reagan was just blinded by blah, blah, blah. It's just, you know, so the, the article itself is like, it's whatever. But that it seems like I, I've been interested to read her book, which I didn't read the story, uh, the storyteller's daughter, because it's interesting that like, you know, that's what she called it because he was such a, you know, someone who told a lot of stories like that were a master of disinformation. Yes, a master of disinformation. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, like, they... So, so like, basically, I mean, I think Idris Shah had to know that of all this, like, foreign influence... And, and in a way, he was basically a part of it. I mean, regardless of how directly he can... But it seemed like there wouldn't be any kind of, like, why even... What was the downside to even, you know, shilling for the Mujahideen and writing this novel and going there and like whipping up you know attention about it in the west he was only lauded pretty much as like this just another awesome thing that he did and, and getting people involved you know really caring about this brave struggle that was going on you know i could see a bunch of like congress of cultural freedom type like liberal elites just like applauding wildly and you know i don't know if it won any awards but just saying like you know this is what art is all about it's about like raising awareness and blah 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 and uh you know it's very charlie wilson's war like mm -hmm. not um presenting this like swashbuckling hyper simplistic view of what's going on there and then obscuring and hiding and lying about like the west's own involvement as if it's like just this like this crazy war going on that we just stumbled on that like nobody knew about but now like you know almost in a ted talk way like, let me tell you a story you know about yeah. some brave mountain fighters that yeah. resisting an evil empire and you know i mean i think yeah. maybe it, it it definitely probably had some impact kind of um bolstering the western position beyond just people that were like reaganite like cold warrior diehards you know that you could really get the kind of sympath the, the the sympathetic liberal vote or you know cosign by basically uh ginning up this uh you know the, these are just like like rad anarchists like uh you know nature hippies like fighting an evil techno empire kind of thing yeah. i mean it was always very much on like the hunter you know i'm very intrigued and like there's just so much like here uh you know that one could like go into with with idris shah but i i am intrigued by like the parallels i mean it it on some level and probably is just like a function of you know uh the reading that we've been doing and having just done uh the 09a for alwara but like i am very intrigued by the like 
similarities between him and David Myatt. Like, yeah. the, you know, like, uh, one thing that struck at me from one of his, you know, the pseudonymous book I was reading from earlier, the Archon Darul Secret Society's book, you know, he, like, rejects the typical, like, etymology of, of Sufi as being, like, uh, meaning wool. And, again, like, you know, because putting on, like, sort of a wool garment is, like, seen as, like, an aesthetic sort of move, and that's kind of... Mm -hmm. But uh, he uses his system of decoding to say that actually what it means is uh, effort, power, and rising to success. Um, oh, and, like, which is just very much, like, reminds me of that thing that uh, David Myatt wrote to Aquino, where he's like, it's all about self-effort, you know, a real effort. What did he say? Uh, yeah, self-reliance, self-experience, self-effort, the personal struggle for achievement. And yeah, have you that, have you pushed yourself to the absolute limit? Have you gone beyond yeah. like the realm of the conscious and the pre-conscious? You know, have yeah. you have you you know dove into like the light and the dark about the synthesis between? You could almost see like a different tone of voice and a little more of a posh British, you know, uh, affectation. You could almost hear Idris Shah like saying a lot of those things. Yeah, but it's like. And another thing that I noticed is that he says, like, in the same book, uh, in this like, same chapter, like, just after he calls himself uh, the Caliph of Al-Islam, he um, says that Sufis hold to the principle of honor and effort to an astonishing extent. You know, the same honor, you know, with the, the mm. British spelling. Exactly like the where the whole thing is about kindred honor. Honor. Like, everything is, like, you know, and effort. It's, like, the same themes, like, and the whole connection with, like, the witchery, like, Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and, yeah, and there's pre, a lot, pre-Abrahamic like, origins of religion. Yeah, and there's a lot there to, like, you know, the whole, like, all the stuff that he writes about conditioning and, like, the triggering of people, like, using the, you know, uh, in the commanding self, he talks about how uh, this woman, uh, he tells a story that's like uh it's like it's, it's titled like the pit is the name of the story that he tells um mm -hmm. and it's very like uh you know uh very like mk type of uh trigger thing where he talks about a young woman who'd been sheltered from many experiences of life found herself one day in the glittering foyer of a london theater she had not been to the theater before and she was almost totally unprepared for what she saw her indoctrination at home had been of an emotional religiosity which dwelt upon the delights of heaven and the horrors of the quote pit of hell the lavish decoration of the entrance hall where she had to wait for her escort to collect the tickets was a completely new environment for her the people were not only all strangers to her but were dressed in bewildering variety of colors and were characterized by a liveliness and sophistication which she could relate to nothing in her own life suddenly in the midst of her bemusement engendered by these impacts she saw and read a sign which pointed towards the orchestra stalls it indicated the pit what else could she do but give a scream of horror run from the theater and as soon as she could seek solace and forgiveness and earnest prayer and that is what she did you know and he says this is a, a you know is this a fable it is printed in the london observer as news and a record of a theatrical incident contributed by a correspondent so you know uh That's he's talking this, this is conditioned behavior and the persistence of what we easily recognize as a primitive pattern of reactions in the present day um in talking about how like uh the command well you know these these triggered reactions these uh you know horror what does he call it the horror trigger um yeah and yeah yeah even the most barbaric and the most advanced societies there are millions of people many of them certainly in positions of authority and importance who react in a similar manner providing that their quote horror trigger is tripped there's like so much to this guy like you know you could go down the, like uh but yeah you know yeah, it's like, he's very he's very 
fixated on that that idea of like involuntary psychological triggers that it, it, yeah you know exist in symbolic form everywhere which you know and it's like i mean i kind of i agree with what lp sutton uh says in a way or lwell sutton lp mm-hmm. lwell sutton uh in that like i think that i definitely do think there is value in actual like sufi thought by like actual sufis like you know uh of the of the past and like potentially even like genuine sufis of the present but like that value can't be credited if it's like based as you said like on falsehood um yeah. and this is all about yeah like this is not this is you know the, the it's it's sus it's sus uh-huh. it's, it's sus deeply, exactly deeply sus. um yeah. and i think um i think i think we're getting about to the end here but maybe to close out um i just wanted to read a short poem that um that lawrence l sutton put at the end of his scathing essay okay. <clears throat> that i found kind of odd and compelling and and i think a very deliberate you know dig at, at the the oeuvre of idrashaw so this is called the progress of posy by dj enright and um it says I too would avail myself of the large and common benefits of modern technology, that on the wings of imagination a chartered jet shall transport me to my inspiration, that tapes may record the best and happiest moments of the happiest and best minds, that a fine excess of surprising subject matter be relayed to me by satellite, that powerful pumps ensure the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, that cameras shall arrest the vanishing apparitions which haunt the interlunations of life, that sophisticated computers select the best words and collocate them in the best order. A pointed stick, some vegetable dye, a strip of bark removed by stealth from the public park. Yeah, I don't know. I think... Um, Interesting. That brings to mind, I guess, maybe the idea of this kind of pseudo-spiritualism that I think uh, L.L. Sutton is kind of accusing Shah of engaging in um the i guess the kind of the uh the association of kind of ecstatic things like you know um the wings of imagination the <laughs> chartered jet shall transport me uh tapes may record the best and happiest moments um a fine excess of surprising subject matter will be relayed to me by satellite um i think he's taking a dig at kind of this like these spiritual people being still firmly stuck in technocratic modernity and like this theme that keeps popping up in his work that it's like all boils down to like a quest for self-advancement and like dominating the the mundane world yeah it's a good poem i like it it is i like it a lot yeah Uh, no it, it, it it really hits well yeah i think uh i think for now we can leave it there yeah and we i mean i think next week we're probably going to get back to afghanistan again in a more direct way we'll see i want to see i want to know if we can fit operation cyclone and the contra wars into one episode or maybe we'll see we'll see how far we get we'll see word but for now, um, don't get psyoped by pseudo-Sufism, I guess? Yeah. Uh, don't. Uh, watch out for the spy of the heart. 
Yes. Yeah. He he's out there. He's definitely out there. Stay low. Stay paranoid. Stay vigilant. Yes. Peace. Salams. Those to whom God remains veiled. Praise to the God who in their belief is their Lord to have compassion with them. But the intuitive mystics ask that the divine compassion be fulfilled or come into being and exist through them. Prayer is the highest form, the supreme act of the creative imagination. The teacher is one who hears you then unveils you to yourself. <laughs> 